Driving that coach. 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 Welcome to another edition of Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. I'm JD. I'm AJ. Uh, I don't know if you can hear this, folks, or not, but I'm outside right now having a cigar, enjoying myself. Decided to try something different this week. Uh, we've been having some audio issues lately, and I wanted to be outside and have a continual power source at the same time. So uh, I think, it, you know, I'm, I'm living it so far. I'm enjoying a good cigar. I'm actually smoking a... Uh, uh, fucking uh, Cuban, well, whatever Cuban, uh, <laughs> Cuban pounds, taste of Havana. Uh, it's pretty, yeah, I'm enjoying that and just looking outside and seeing this beautiful day out here in California. I uh, hope you guys are having a good time wherever you are in this world. And again, thank you to all our uh, friends and subscribers who continue to support us and continue to support the show. Uh, we are. We are so grateful for that, especially right now when COVID-19 and everybody's all locked up. The fact that you chose to sit back and listen to us ramble about pop culture bullshit really means a lot to us. It really does. Well, and we're, we're happy to do it, too. And, uh, you know, we do have uh, this wonderful core group of folks uh, that, that keep joining us. I will say, I haven't even had a chance to tell you yet, we're picking up new people internationally all the time. Apparently, uh, Brazil and Germany are now interested. So to our Brazilian listeners, our German listeners, uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, I hope, uh, hope you get something interesting and entertaining out of this. Uh, for our Brazilian listeners, I love Brazilian barbecue. So thank you for that. And I also love uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So those are my contributions for, uh, <laughs> for that. Also, for German, my last name is German. Well, before we move to Germany, I just have to say, since you're the ranking single member of the podcast, I'm actually disappointed you didn't have anything nice to say about their women. Oh, in Brazil? Oh, uh, actually, I was getting to that. I was going to say, that should have been the number one thing before we even got to the barbecue and the jujitsu. I mean, I I can talk about barbecue and jujitsu. I can talk about the rainforest. I can talk about the art, capoeira. But, dude, like, you know, I'm locked down. Yeah, I had to thank the Brazilian people for their beautiful women, uh, particularly for uh, those who have Instagram accounts. Uh, they are bad. I love the suntans they be having, booty on top of booty on top of booty. Um, so y'all love me some Brazilian women. Uh, so <laughs> so thank you for bringing that up, baby. I'm, I'm into that, but okay, cool. I didn't want you to miss an opportunity there to, to shout out to some women that, uh, that I know that you appreciate. In my single days, I was, a, I was an appreciator, but uh, as a good married man now, um, I will leave it all to you, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> and, and moving to Germany, I will say, having spent a little time there, um, they do have some hearty eating, but my favorite thing about Germany is still the beer. Yeah, uh, I stopped over at an airport in Germany when I was in the Navy. And uh, that was about it. Just stopped at the airport. Uh, one thing I do remember that about that particular flight is they they were sold like absent and shit like that at the airport. So like Marines and sailors just stocking the fuck up for the flight back home to America. So yeah, we were drunk as shit. 
Uh, they've got they've got all kinds of good alcohol. Um, they've got fantastic for us Cuban cigars. You can get Cuban cigars there, delicious. And I will say, one of the best parties I've ever been to in my life was Oktoberfest in Munich. Absolutely insane. The whole city, everybody's busy getting drunk and eating delicious, gigantic sausages. And I mean, dude, it's it's a it's a blast. Like if we can figure it out, actually, that would be a fantastic. We're gonna do a bucket list for the show. Live from October, that's dropping that culture with JD and AJB. Top of that, I think. That was dope. Massage and uh, South Clout and, you know, all kinds of, you know, beer. Oh, yeah, I'm down with that, man. All right. Well, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. But thank you guys very much for, uh, especially our new subscribers here, thank you very much for joining us. And like I said, we'll go ahead and get into our first segment of the show here. And that would be uh, Seven Degrees of Eddie Murphy. I can connect any major, any major American film star to the great Eddie Murphy within seven years. <laughs> All right, so who we got for me this week, AJ? First on the list, Mr. Charles Bronson. Okay, that's a good choice. All right, uh, actually, pretty easy. Uh, Charles Bronson was in Death Wish 2 with Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne was in Boys in the Hood with Cuba Gooden Jr. Cuba Gooden Jr. was in Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. That was a hell of a lot faster than I thought it was going to be. I figured going, you know, 70s film star, I'd, I'd be able to get away from it, but damn, dude. He also did movies in the 80s, too. All right. Well, sticking with my theme of older movie stars, I don't think this one's going to take you very much when I go there anyway, because here's one of my favorite films ever. Mm-hmm. Paul Newman. Good. All right. Good choice. Paul Newman was in... What route do I want? Okay, I'll go this route. Paul Newman was in uh, The Color of Money with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was in Collateral with Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx was in Dreamgirls with Eddie Murphy. All right. There's a you get There's a lot of ways to to Eddie. That's why I've never done Tom Cruise. <laughs> uh, like uh, people sleep on the color of money. It's a good movie. Yeah. So I'm just saying, if you, you check it out, people, most people probably get get mixed around, and then they hear about Mo Money, and then they see Mo Money, and they're like, "Well, this is just so great. What do I need color of money for?" No, go watch Color Money. <laughs> Mo Mo Money. <laughs> Don't you say anything bad about Mo Money, dude. Uh, okay, <laughs> I love Damon Wayans. I love Marlon Wayans. Mo Money is not one of their best efforts. I'm sorry, dude. Don't even start with me on this one. That's that's a fantastic film. It is solid. It is great for the two of them together. It's a good film. It's got it's a solid. It's solid, yes, but it's not like one of my go-to's for the Wayans. And we both know what my go-to it's is. Be your top. Just, just you know, be careful not to undercut it because it's a solid film. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Uh, this is more money, dude. Okay. That whole scene in the deli when they're getting the sandwich for free—it's funny, yeah. But you know, like, like I said, the movie and stuff is cool, but it's not like a favorite of mine. I'm just saying. All right, all right, fine. Huh? No, for taste. All right, so uh, my, my final one for today: deep, deep dive. I think uh-huh. maybe I'll get away with it on this one, Mr. Frank Sinatra. Good choice. Okay. Ah, I got it. Frank Sinatra was in The Detective 
with Lloyd Bachner. Lloyd Bachner was in The Naked Gun Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear with Leslie Nielsen. Leslie Nielsen was in Creep Show with Ted Danson. Ted Danson was in yeah, yeah, Ted Danson was in Made in America with Nia Long. Nia Long was in Big Mama's House with Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence was in Life of Damn. You yeah. You about ran out, but you got it there. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was like, yeah, like it's getting close, but I got that motherfucker. I did have a, I did have a bonus one. Well, originally I was going to go with this one, but then I was trying to go more a little bit deeper dive since you got Charles Bronson so quick. I've, I've got a bonus one if you want to want to slam dunk it real quick. Go for it. Heather Graham. Heather Graham. They were, dude, are you fucking serious? I told you you could hit slam dunk it. Go for it. They, Heather Graham and Eddie Murphy were in Bowfinger together. There you go. That's why I said it was a slam dunk. <laughs> Heather Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I was hoping I was hoping I could make you pause for a second just so I could be like, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of did, but I was like, oh, fuck it. You want me to do it? I'll do it. No, it's a slam dunk. Yeah, okay, cool. All right, so our choices for this week Charles Bronson, Paul Newman, uh, would you say, uh, what's the other one? Frank Sinatra. Uh, Frank Sinatra and Heather Graham. <laughs> Cool. All right. All right. So let's go ahead and move along to our next segment, and that will be WWBS. What will Busey say? Hey, this is Gary Busey talking to Gary Busey. What time is it, Gary? It's time for WWBS. What will Busey say? What are we talking about today, Gary? All right. So for this week, I have a pretty simple question for, for Mr. Busey. Mm-hmm. Are Canadians real people? Do they look like us? Do they look like they do in South Park? What do you know about these mysterious neighbors to the north, the Canadians or Canadians, as some may say? Uh, Canadians, Saskatoon, Calgary, Toronto, Winnipeg, Montreal. Ah, uh, Canadians, man. I'll tell you something about Canadian people. They're bitches. And I mean that with the most utmost sincerity. I mean, they're, they're too nice to be taken seriously, okay? I, I go up to Canada, all right? Sometimes I go up there just to escape, you know, let's uh, say uh, escape uh, litigation, you know? So I go up in Canada, I hang out a little bit, I have me some uh, Molson, you know, uh, go to a couple of freaking uh, uh, Toronto Blue Jays games, just to kind of, you know, lay low, do my thing out there. And I, I just find that, you know, no matter what I do in Canada, there's always somebody that's there with a nice retort. Somebody that's always there, you know, with a helping hand. You know, I punch a Canadian in the face. They actually apologize to me. You know, you know, I might, you know, attempt to have sex with some guy's wife. He'll be like, okay, the wife is asking for it. You know, stuff like that, man. But listen, Canadian people are ripe for a hostile takeover. Now, if I were a dictator, my very first choice would be Canada. I mean, look at it, free healthcare, I mean, beer, lots of beer, Canadian bacon, you know, mooses. 
I like I like saying mooses. Yeah. People say moose as a single as a plural word or whatever. No, I say mooses. <laughs> they got all that stuff up there. Plus, my favorite thing they have in Canada, or that's from Canada, to be honest with you. Yeah, Pamela Anderson. Oh yeah. There's a lot of chicks up in Canada that look like Pamela Anderson. You think there'd be like a shortage of them, but there's actually an abundance of them. They're everywhere, man. It's like they're like Toyota Camrys. They're everywhere. It's crazy. So what I would do is I would invade Canada, take all the Pam Anderson-looking women, and ride a moose off. And that'll be the new national symbol of Canada, me on a goddamn moose with a Pamela Anderson looking like that. That'd be the good, that'd be the way to go. That'd be the dream. Tiger blood. All right, we have to cut to a sponsor real quick. Canadian Carl here. So do you like have like uh, feelings of anger often mixed with rage, eh? Well, uh, you know, if people often upset you, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that's not so good. But at Canadian Carl's, I can teach you uh, how to have like a, a healthier outlook, eh? So, you know, like instead of calling that feller who cut you off there in traffic uh, an effing a-hole, uh, but maybe like yeah, you got like your kids in the back seat uh, of, of your car there, you know, you could simply uh, take a deep breath and uh, maybe count to 10 and then you could say something like, geez, uh, that, 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 that guy's a hoser, eh? For more tips on uh, training on like how to control your rage, uh, you can go to Canadian Carl's School of Anger Management. Uh, we're, we're actually supported by the Canadian government of uh, Manitoba. Okay, I uh, hope I didn't upset you uh, just a little bit there, just trying to help you. Canadian Carl is a proud sponsor of the culture dropping that uh, JD and AJ do. Okay, bye bye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I can't even say nothing about my hostile takeover. Nothing. Hey, that was a. I, I'm. I'm not necessarily uh, against it. I, I think it'd be interesting to see Gary Busey trying to win a hostile takeover of Canada. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> He'd probably have varying success depending on the province he goes to. But uh, I don't know if we want to get into the. Uh, French Canadian versus you know regular uh, Canadian. Oh, uh, <laughs> so but, but, we'll let them fight it out amongst themselves. To my handful of cousins up there, um, prove them wrong. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what else to say. Prove Gary Busey wrong. <laughs> yeah, new Canadian flag with Gary Busey on the moose and Pamela Anderson on his back. <laughs> uh, it never never ceases to entertain, Mr. Busey. His wild ride. He's a wild guy. <laughs> that would actually be, it could be the competitor to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Universal, Gary Busey's Wild Ride, or Gary Busey's Psychedelic Trip. That should be a movie, man. We should write that. That'd be great. That would be dope. <laughs> yeah, that was great, Gary. How you doing today, Gary? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm Gary Busey. I'm doing great. <laughs> All right, folks. So we're gonna go ahead and uh, forego uh, Rogeries wrap this week. Uh, we'll come back with it next week. But let's go ahead and get to our other segment here. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Roger, what? What? Hey, you interrupting me? What?
I said, quite frankly, Richard was uh, Richard. Roger was just shit faced drunk this week, so he wasn't able to to make it. Yeah, Roger got issues, man. <laughs> but he'll be back. You know, like hey, like they always say at the end of the James Bond movie, uh, Roger Moore will return. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. All right. All right, so uh, actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and talk about, since we brought it up a little bit earlier, let's talk about our sponsors. We've got a couple sponsors here we want to talk about. First off would be Belsaverse. Uh, go to teespring.com, get yourself some Belsaverse merch. Uh, we got T-shirts, we got uh, hoodies, we got, you know, different things with the Belsaverse label on it. Uh, we've got a couple new shirts here. Like uh, like I said, they all offer different sizes. we got it for men, women, infants. You know, you want to get yourself some Belsaverse gear, Go ahead and go to teespring.com. It really helps out the show. Also, go to the Belsaverse page on Facebook. And you can also go to the Belsaverse group on YouTube. I'm regularly dropping uh, new jewels in terms of uh, entertainment news. And also the Belsaverse page on Instagram. Uh, most recently, I did a thing on uh, Black is King by Beyonce. We're actually going to get into that a little bit later. It's kind of the meat and potatoes of our show today. Uh, but like I said, go ahead and join up, you know what I'm saying, and, uh, you know, tell your friends about it, man. And we also have another sponsor, which I'm going to go ahead and give to AJ. Before we get too far into that next sponsor, I'll just say Chunky Child Shirt at Belserverse Spring Tees is fantastic. Everybody should own at least two. Um, yeah, I agree. Looking to our next sponsor, it is U.S. Hooker, ushooker.com. For all your rugby needs, if you want to learn the great sport of rugby, if you want to uh, support a bunch of people that are promoting the sport of rugby, if you want to get some killer gear and show off to the rest of the world, hey, how much you love this new fantastic sport, U.S. Hooker is the place for you. USHooker.com has videos, has all kinds of uh, interesting uh, frequently asked questions, tidbits, um, everything from videos explaining the sport of rugby all the way to, you know, basically mashups of some killer hits and stuff like that. Enough enough to really get you excited about this fantastic sport. Um, as we're all still waiting to see what happens with football and everything, I will say for those of us that uh, pay that $3 a month or $4 a month for ESPN+, Plus, uh, Super Rugby is back on in New Zealand, so you can watch live games. You can learn the sport extremely quickly. And I said it once, I'll say it again. Going from football to rugby is like going from boxing to MMA. It doesn't mean that you have to abandon the other, but it really is better in a lot of ways, and it's kind of hard to go back once you get into it. So go to ushooker.com, uh, go to our Facebook page, uh, go to Instagram. You can find all that good content and support us while we're doing that. And obviously it supports uh, what I do on my side of the podcast. Definitely go back over to Belsiver, support what he does on that side. And most importantly of all, Go to Facebook, go to the Dropping That Culture Facebook page, like, subscribe, share with your friends, follow us on uh, podcast app for Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you, you follow us so you don't miss a minute of, I mean, come on, you're, you're hearing Gary Busey and his insane ramblings. Roger Moore is reading you rap from the grave and we're playing Seven Degrees of Eddie Murphy. Just that alone, before you get into the deep dive geek culture, this, this is fantastic. Please share with everyone. We love doing it, and we love you guys for being here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Dropping that news. Okay. What do you have this week? All right, so the first and foremost thing that we have going on right now uh, would be what's being known as the uh, DC bloodbath. Oh, yeah. 
unfortunately, yeah. Uh, uh, over 600 people were released from uh, DC Comics over the last few days, including several senior longtime staffers and a lot of the uh, major administrative staff. So they're doing like a almost complete overhaul over there at DC Comics. Um, it's not very good, particularly because of the fact that, you know, you know, it's just not a good sound overall for DC Comics because like, you know, things, everything is being affected by the quarantine for us in, in terms of like uh, distribution. They actually just uh, recently cut ties to their major distribution thing for the comics themselves. So yeah, it's not really looking good for DC Comics right now. Well, I think, I think to be fair, looking at it from a business standpoint, the, the real thermometer to this thing is going to be what happens once we start moving into uh, final phase uh, reopening in California and New York. Because, um, I mean, most of, most of the people who work in DC Comics are going to be in one of those two city centers. And considering how locked down LA is, and even in some ways you hear about how it's almost going backwards in the lockdown in New York, uh, reality is it's just... I mean, it's, it's happening across the board with pretty much every industry. There's a lot of, a lot of different jobs are being axed, um, if for no other reason than to try to do some temporary relief because it's, you know, it's, it's top heavy for for something if they're not able to contribute at the same level. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I think. I think it's kind of a wait and see. It's definitely not the greatest of signs. Whenever anybody's having to let anyone go, it shows some issues with long-term planning, but. Um, I'm hopeful anyway, I should say, because you know me, I'm, I'm definitely more on the DC side than the MCU side. I'm hopeful this is just a temporary setback that uh, once we get back to something approaching normalcy, we'll be able to see them you know, hire back a lot of folks and maybe even bring in some, some new people on the story end and get to some new character creation. Yeah. All right. So like I said, uh, thoughts out there for the people that, uh, you know, looking for jobs right now from DC Comics, you know what I'm saying? Last thing I would want to be is jobless in this damn uh, corona goddamn situation, man. It sucks. But like I said, prayers up to him. Um, it's not that Next bad. up. It's not that bad. I mean, <laughs> having having been unemployed several times before and now being unemployed in this one, I'm going to say there's hope for him. So if you're one of the DC layoffs and you just hit you, and maybe this is the first time you've been laid off, it sucks. It's a bummer. But not that bad you'll survive it i've been surviving it for a minute here you just got to stay positive about it something else is going to swing around and you know what here's here's the the real thing i'm, I'm really interested because it's that many creative folks got laid off there's going to be some new startup kinds of things that are going to pop out so these guys you, you'll go home you might be sad or bored or whatever for a week or two those guys are going to put together some kick-ass content i i just know it in my bones somebody somewhere in there is going to have something that's going to turn out five, 10 years from now, we're going to hear about it. It's going to be a breakout, something on the level of like a matrix or something like that. You're like, wow, this is insane. And it'll be something that, you know what, I got laid off from DC, felt bad for myself for a day and then got together with my friends and we built something. So as a laid off person myself at the moment in the industry, I'm just saying it's not that bad. It'd be all right. You just got to stay positive about it. Yeah. Cool. All right, so next up, uh, it was just recently announced that they're going to be doing a remake of Three Men and a Baby on Disney Plus starring Zac Efron. I don't think we need that. I don't think we need that at all. For those of you not familiar with the original movie, I think it came out in like 1987. It was a huge hit. I think it was the hit of that year uh, was the Three Men and a Baby. Uh, originally starred uh, Tom Selleck. Uh, Steve Gutenberg and Ted Danson, all three were like huge stars at the time. Of course, uh, 
Ted and Tom were huge TV stars from Magnum PI and Cheers. And of course, Steve Gutenberg was huge from Cocoon and the Police Academy movies. So it basically like these three guys living in this apartment in New York or whatever. Uh, and it's cool because they, they, they have like artistic like uh, things all over their apartment. So there's always pictures of them, caricatures of them everywhere. But then I think they go to like a party and something happens where like, I think they all sleep with the same woman. And then a couple months later, um, a baby shows up on their fucking doorstep. And now they, you know, they're trying to figure out which of the three of them is the dad. And, you know, just the misadventures of three single men trying to raise a child, you know, for the first time. And I'm, I'm interested to see, because, like, three men and a baby, that's a very risque subject for Disney. Well, well no, so, we got to back it up a little bit. So if I remember the story correctly, it's been a minute since I read the book, but if I remember correctly, it's based on a French film. And it was one of the adult forays that Katzenberg, when he was head of Disney, um, uh, Disney for production anyway, he ended up taking and it was over, over the top expensive, but it ended up turning out to, to work out for him. All right. And, and by over the top expensive, I mean, for Disney, what they kind of had is their approved budget um, and, and sort of their, their marketing model. Everything for them was low, high production um, concept, low production cost. Um, so anyway, so it, it turned out to be a great hit for him. It was one of the, the many uh, jewels in the crown of, of Katzenberg during his time there. But it was a remake and it was already, it was already done. And it's, it stands the test of time, it was fine. Disney's done it before. So I think they did it under Touchstone if I'm not mistaken. And since they're doing this new Disney Plus release and they'll just roll it in, but as a Touchstone release um, would be my guess or maybe Mark Vista. But what I'm more interested in is so back then, right, 1987, this is, you know, for, for our younger viewers that maybe remember some of this like, like we did when we were in school, this is before OJ. The idea of DNA wasn't in anything, right? You could, you could easily end up with the core of this film if we don't know who the dad is, if all three of them have the same blood type. In 1987, people would be like, well, I don't know, it could be any one of you. Um, I don't understand in, in 2020 how you can have a movie that lasts longer than 10 minutes with anybody in it that's called Three Men and a Baby because it's literally like, okay, well, we're gonna go down to, I mean, you don't even have to go anywhere. You can literally just do a 23andMe swab, <laughs> send it in the mail, sit there for two days, it comes back, you're like, yeah, I want the dad, you're the dad. Like, it's <laughs> it's just, the, as a concept, I just don't know how it holds up. You know what I mean? Like, scientifically, it's like, they can pull touch DNA off of stuff now, and they're, they're busting guys who committed murders 50 years ago because they, touch the rope that they tied up their victim with i don't understand what with a live baby like how that lasts more than 20 minutes if we all can do dna unless they're stranded on a desert island or something and also you are right about the whole thing that's based on the french thing i forgot i can't pronounce the french name but i know it translates to three men in a cradle so yeah they have done it in, in french or whatever uh, but yeah like i said other than zach efron there is no other like casting news uh who who the other two guys are going to be. Um, but yeah, they're, they're going that route, so more power to them. I mean, I'm going to say this. I don't, I don't have an opinion one way or another, really, of Zac Efron. I don't, I don't really know a lot of his work, but um, just as, like, one friend to another, I'm going to say, get out. Run, yeah. run, man. <laughs> like, this can't be, like, because I, I know he tried doing the comedic thing for a minute. He keeps kind of jumping between comedy and drama. Um, I just... Like I said, there's not there's not anything there, and remakes, generally speaking, tend to be death for the people involved. If if you're doing a franchise reboot, you got a mm -hmm. chance, but if it's a total remake, like 
just move move on. The only the only way it ever works out to, to my memory, for the most part, is if you're remaking something from a foreign language film. And sometimes yeah. that doesn't even work out. Like, do you remember Shall We Dance? Yes. So the whole thing about Richard Gere being like this kind of weird, awkward uh, guy in Chicago, and it's a, it's it's somehow embarrassing for him that he ballroom dances. Like that doesn't work, right? Because like we all like everybody looks at Richard Gere and you're like, no, of course he's a guy who ballroom dances and he gets chicks that way. Like it's you know that makes sense. But there's a whole cultural thing that goes into it in Japan that made it work as a Japanese film in the original Shall We Dance because there's I mean, there's a lot of weird cultural stuff that can come into play when you start getting out too far afield from what's culturally acceptable. And so for them, yeah, it is something that you're going to get a lot of heavy judgment from your peers. But like, you know, a Wall Street or um, I, I guess, what, what, what do they call it in Chicago? It's the equivalent of Wall Street. When you're a trader, a money man in uh, a banker and they find out you ballroom dance, everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, oh, you, you had to do ballroom dance. That's great. My parents made me go to take golf lessons. Like, that's what that's, that world is. So they, it can very easily kind of spin off weird. Whereas like, like I said, for Efron, I just don't see there being any there there. It's almost like he's doing somebody a deal. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, uh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking as you were saying that about the whole French remake thing, actually two of movies that I love from the eighties, well, well, French remakes, uh, the toy, uh, with Richard Pryor and the woman in red with, with Gene Wilder. Like both of those French remakes. I'll tell you, modern films. My favorite French remake is a uh, Quarantine. Oh yeah, that is a French remake. Yeah, based off that that film Record. Or yes. Art. Yeah, I don't know if they actually said the whole word Record, but anyway. Yeah, that's that's killer. So I mean, it, like I said, it can work, but aside from that, like, what's the last? What's the last remake of any other film that was already done as like a major American film that was any good? true yeah death race maybe kind of sort of and it's only because death race 2000 is so fucking weird yeah but like i said we'll see uh on the nickelodeon front uh for those of you who are big fans of spongebob squarepants uh his sidekick patrick is getting his own show yeah. and uh, yeah yeah good for him yeah and uh funny enough i didn't realize until i saw the article today that the voice of Patrick is, uh, you know, you've seen the, the, the show Coach, the, the uh, Craig T. Nelson show? The, the, from back in the, the, like, early 90s, right? Yeah, uh, the big, the big uh, tall, blonde guy that used to be on that show. That's yeah. the voice of Patrick. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that until I saw that damn article. Uh, but, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he did his own show, man. They just ordered 13 episodes for Nickelodeon. And this is the part that I thought was interesting. Interesting. The name of the show is going to be the Patrick Star Show, and they're basing it on the Larry Sanders Show. Huh. So Patrick is apparently getting a talk show, and is going to have his family and staff and all this other shit. So yeah, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. That's when you said that, I, I was actually thinking more towards uh, when Space Ghost got his his talk show. I, it might be like that. Like it might be like them. Like it might be cartoon caricatures of like celebrities or something like that. Because they've done stuff like that on SpongeBob before. Yes, apparently Patrick's getting his own show, and yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of interested to see how the interactions are gonna be. But yeah, I just the fact that they based it, like I said, on the Larry Sanders show. Which for those of you who never actually saw that show, it was a dope fucking show, man. 
Uh, on HBO, starring the late Gary Shandling, also the late Torn, Jeffrey Tambor, Janine Garofalo, and basically just the behind the scenes of shooting a major talk show. Uh, and it's a very funny show, very, uh, very innovative at the time. And like I said, the fact that they're basing it on that, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how they do it. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm excited. So, all right. So next up, uh, they just released a trailer, a teaser trailer for the reboot again of Saved by the Bell. And apparently, it's going to be on the Peacock streaming service and uh, it's going to be a new generation of kids at Bayside High and two of the old originals uh, A.C. Slater and Jason Spano uh, Mario Lopez and Elizabeth Brinkley respectively are coming back as teachers Uh, and like like you see like a lot of the subject matter apparently is going to be of of kids generation so it's going to be smartphones talking about the Kardashians and shit like that it's Californian now, so millennials. Um, and then uh, the thing about it was, I was watching it, I was like, they tried this before. It didn't really work. Uh, it, for those of you who are old enough to remember, on NBC, they did uh, Saved by the Bell, the new class, when it was uh, like new kids at Bayside, but it kept, uh, for the originals, they kept uh, Mr. Belding and Screech. And Screech became like his administrative assistant. And like, it was basically, you know, same kind of deal, but like I said, it's just for new generations, for the millennials now, and like I said, I, I was just happy to see, you know, a, you know, A.T. Slater and Jesse back on the show, you know what I'm saying? Because like, you know, Mario Lopez pretty much looks the same, and well, the Birdland really did shit. What, what are they going to have Mario playing? Because he still looks like he's in high school. He's playing, uh, I think he's like the gym coach. A.C. Slater's become like the coach. The have, gym you coach. Seen, have you seen him? Have you seen Mario Lopez in person? No, I've not seen him in person, but like I said, I just... I, I saw he's, him. He looked, Dude, uh-huh. I was working the Special Olympics about four or five years ago. I was, I was running a stage, and he came to present some of the trophies, uh, or some of the medals, rather, to, uh, to, the, to the athletes. And, dude, I don't, know, I don't know what kind of living he's got, what kind of deal he made with what devil, but the dude right. still looks like he did when he walked off that show in the last episode. It is insane. Like, yeah, he listens to things, except you don't have that stupid ass Jericho no more. Dude, strap it back on him. Like, that's literally all you. Like, he looks. It's. Ins- I'm just. You know, I, I just have to put that out there. Like, it's ridiculous. Out of anyone in Hollywood, maybe he's got the cleanest living out of anybody. Maybe that's what it is. But it's basically like him and Tom Cruise, are like the two guys that don't ever seem to age. Yeah, and like freaking the thing about it is like freaking like I say he looks exactly the same. Uh, like I said, except for the stupid haircut. And keep in mind, the end of that show was like almost 30 years ago. Yeah. 20 plus years. You know what I'm saying? Well, dude, that's what I'm saying. The guy, the guy's pushing 50 and he still looks like he's 20. And yeah, so, you know, more power to him. Oh, yeah, another one that like uh, never seems to age really is fucking Keanu Reeves. Let's move going that route. Uh, fucking because like... Keanu, Keanu aged, it seems like, from Bill and Ted to The Matrix, and then he stopped it about The Matrix. So he looks like he's eternally, like, 35. Exactly. And he's, like, 60. Yeah, that's what I'm – so in that part, I mean, I'll grant you, like, that part's pretty crazy on his side, too. But I don't know of anyone who still looks like they're 20 who's almost 50. 
Exactly. Like that's so. part of what's what's insane to me on that one. And then the other part on this is keeping it with the Save by the Bell reboot. I can't believe that Screech wasn't available. <laughs> and not to rag on the guy, but I mean, honestly, like he hasn't really done much else. So it must just be a, a decision they're making um, aesthetically to, to move away from having him in there. Because I mean, he he's, he's as solid a character as any. Yeah, but he's made some really bad choices. Like but you said they're bringing, you're bringing back Elizabeth Berkley, though, right? Yeah, but I was about to say that, like, she hasn't really done shit since Showgirls. Well, and I was going to say, in terms of, like, some not great choices on the on the aesthetic side, I mean. That was a, that was a professional mistake. Screech has made a lot of personal mistakes. But yeah, like, yeah, Showgirls, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Like, oh, like, a lot of people say it's, like, the worst movie ever made. No, it's the worst movie, but it's not good. It's, it's one of those movies that's, um, I think, how did I hear Joe Rogan explain it? He said it's uh, it's one of those movies that's so bad it gets good. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like you, you sit there moment after moment, and they're being like, what the fuck were you guys thinking? Like, what was what was the discussion on set? You're like, yes, this is gold. It's like, uh, or what's that? What's the other one? that They made the movie about the disaster artist. Um, with the Tom Room. Yeah, The Room. Like, there's certain movies you just watch, like, going, what in the hell? All right. <laughs> All right, we're gonna have to ride this one. This is getting weird. I, I was gonna say, keep in mind for the showgirls thing. Paul Verhoeven was the director, so I'm pretty sure it's like yes, yes, what it is, what it is, yes, yes, yes. You know. Well, and I will say, I've only ever seen it on VH1, so I'm I, I'm quite aware there's a bunch of bunch of very um, gratuitous uh, nudity and sex in there that they obviously had to tone down for for basic cable. Um, but I'd say that's Paul Verhoeven's vision. <laughs> right, right. So, I, but I'm just putting it out there as a, a warning to any of our, our viewers. Um, I don't know what it looks like uncensored. So, um, at your own risk or at at JD's uh, insistence, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and actually, uh, watching the teaser trailer, they make reference to one of the more famous scenes of Saved by the Bell, the original run, with the uh, Jesse Spano caffeine pills thing. You know the. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. The, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so, so scared. That shit. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, like at one, uh, one point, like one of the girls was like having like a, so a thing of pills in her hand, and then like Jesse just comes out of nowhere, snatches the thing out of her hand. Are those caffeine pills? Okay, number one, don't take them because you know what I'm saying. It'll, it'll be exciting. It'll be really exciting, and then you'll be really scared. And then, uh, then your whatever your pop group, uh, uh, Mr. Chance at a big time movie deal because you take caffeine pills, which is like the storyline of the episodes. <laughs> uh, it was, yeah, it was, I, I actually got a chuckle out of that. I was like, that's funny. So, were you, we'll see how that works um, Were you a big time Saved by the Bell fan? Yes and no. I watched like every episode, but like, uh, I know that they uh, redid the Max out here in California. Like a full on reproduction of the Max, and I think of the Bayside High School and shit like that. Um, so I'm not visiting that, but like I like the original run. I watched, I watched the most, I watched a little bit of like some of the reboots. Like I watched like the one when they went to college, the co yeah, say about the building the college years, and I watched a little bit of the first class because you know it, it was what it was. But um, when I say I'm gonna go out of my way to watch a new say about the bell show, not really. Well, to be honest, I never watched any of it because it just I, I saw a couple minutes here and there, and it just it didn't grab me. But 
um, my, my wife's a huge fan. And uh, what, what you were talking about was they had a pop-up restaurant in mm -hmm. uh, Hollywood, the Max. And so um, I went with my, my wife and a couple of her friends uh, to go experience because they were, they were all about it. I mean, they were, they were deep into it. And it was, I mean, look, for somebody who wasn't, uh, wasn't necessarily like a diehard fan or whatever, it was still fun. Food was, you know, it was okay for a pop-up restaurant and they had they recreated part of the part of the high school and principal uh it's belzinger right belzinger's office and oh, a building building see i can't even get it get it right because i didn't watch it enough but i mean there's definitely just on the business angle there's definitely a following for it because it was a freaking line to get in the building and you had yeah. not only was it a line to get in the building but to even be able to go on a certain day you had to do one of those event bright registration things you had to be there during a specific hour and it was just like it's like a whole thing to get in the door because it was just so high demand. So in fact, I think they kept it open a couple of weeks past when they originally planned to close it. So, yeah, because I remember a bunch of my friends were taking like copious pictures at their place oh. for like weeks. Yeah, I, I got to take a few of those. <laughs> and like, well, like I said, so like the Max might not be my, not be my thing, but if they remade Rachel's Place from Family Matters, I'm there. Yeah, so that's my choice. Uh, and also, uh, next bit of news. Uh, like I said, we've been doing a lot of these lately, but we got to do another rest in peace. People just dropping like flies right now. But in this particular case, uh, for those of you who are old school WWF fans, we just lost the Ugandan giant, Kamala. Uh, just passed away at age 70. Uh, his real name is James Harris. Uh, he uh, had several names throughout like Mid-South and all the other different promotions back in the 70s and 80s. But he really struck gold when they came up with the character of Kamala, the Ugandan giant. And he went all across the country and had feuds with some of the biggest wrestlers of all time, most notably Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan. So he had feuds, you know, with those, those guys. And, you know, he was like one of those characters they will bring back every few years you know, when they needed just a little fresh reboot because, like, people just like the nostalgia of Kamala, even though the character is kind of racist. Um, and, like, let's say, I think the last major thing he did for the WWE was, like, at WrestleMania 17, which was, like, in 2001. Uh, they did, like, what they call a gimmick battle royal where they did all the uh, crazy characters all in one battle royal, and mm -hmm. Kamala won them. Uh, but like in recent years, unfortunately, the brother has had some uh, health issues, uh, mainly stemming from diabetes. He actually had to have both his legs amputated, so he's been in dire straits for a few years now. And finally, I believe he succumbed from complications of diabetes. Uh, so rest in peace to the family of James Harris. I, I've always loved, like, say, uh, I've always loved Kamala. It's just one of those crazy characters. Like, god damn, like, where did he come up? Shit. So, <laughs> but yeah, the character was popular all across the world, and you know, what I'm saying like, like uh, rest in peace to Kamala. Uh, one thing uh, I think somebody noticed, somebody said this, like, uh, and I've been watching a lot of old school WWF lately, uh, just because of the fact we're quarantined and shit else to do. I'm actually like, uh, I'm, I'm going like year by year. I started out in 1987. I'm in 1990 right now. And I'm watching everything, like all the like the weekly shows that they had, the major events, Summer Slams, your Royal Rumbles, your Survivor Series, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, one thing I will notice, and I think a lot of wrestlers have said this, if you're in a main event at any time during that during those years with Hulk Hogan, 
you say you, you when you hear that you know I am a real American music come down he's marching down pointing the finger at you and all the shit. Uh, I think somebody said you hear a very distinctive sound in your ear uh, when you when you see Hogan coming at you like that and you're in the ring and, you, and he's coming to have a, a match with you. It's two words, ka-ching. <laughs> okay, because fucking like if you got a spot with Hogan during that time frame, you will make him more money. You'll probably ever make in your entire life, and definitely more money you will make going against anybody else. Because like Hogan was the guy, so and Kamala was one of those lucky guys that went up against Hogan at his height, and that was kind of like the thing back in the days. They would always generate these like this heel factory, like giant monsters for Hogan to fight. So like wrestlers like you know the late King Kong Bundy, Andre the Giant, you know gigantic fucking dudes, Earthquake. You know, people like that, you know what I'm saying? They just come in, you know, and they have a few with Hogan that might fuck him up, like do like a little uh, lay, uh, little layover job on him real quick to kind of get some heat on themselves. And then all of a sudden, there's the big payoff. He has the match with Hulk Hogan, and then Hulk Hogan defeats him, and the hero wins, and Hogan poses in the ring. But still, you get that fucking spot, more money you ever make in your life. And, Hulk, and like I said, Kamala's one of those lucky guys, so rest in peace to him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he's also one of those lucky guys in that, you know, even though the, the way he went was, uh, was still pretty rough and, and wasn't good, he still ended up essentially going something more akin to natural causes at old age. And like you keep saying, when you go into the dark side of the ring, um, that, that doesn't happen as often as it should, where guys get to, you know, grow old and go that route. There's, there's all those other things that end up taking them out a lot younger. So. Yeah, actually, a good example of that was I, the other night I watched a match with, uh, for the, you for you wrestling fans, I watched a match with Kerry Von Eric and Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning with manager Bobby the Brain Heenan. And I watched that match, and I realized to myself, everybody involved in this match is dead. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about it is Bobby Heenan was the oldest of the three. He outlived both of them, <laughs> which is crazy, man. So like I say, uh, Kamala, of course, like I say, he succumbed to diabetes, you know, I believe, so... You know, rest in peace to him, but some of the other people are not so lucky, and they passed away a lot younger than him. He lived he lived long enough to see he's seven years old. You know? uh, and actually, funny enough, Hulk Hogan actually just celebrated his 67th birthday, I think, today or yesterday. So, you know, happy birthday to the Hulkster. Um, now, last thing I have in terms of uh, dropping that news, they just ordered a new series on Amazon based on the classic film, A League of Their Own. So the all-female baseball movie with Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell and Gina Davis and Lori Petty back in the day. Yeah, they're doing a TV series. Uh, yeah, it's going to be on Amazon. Apparently, it's going to be executive produced by the same producers that did the show Broad City. That's really all the news I have on it, but yeah. Um, but even so, I mean, I'll say I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm just the, the the biggest problem across the board is is that there's not there seems to be a a, a absolute um, lack of any original content that's truly original. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I don't I, I hate sounding like those guys. I remember those guys, especially when I was in school, that would always just be you know down on either remake central or on big like you know studio style stuff but i mean the reality is what we watched happen in the last 
10 to 15 years is Netflix and Amazon as the two major, you know, streaming services came in. And while originally, you know, they kind of made their bones in the original content uh, arena with stuff that truly was original and groundbreaking and interesting, they've kind of slowly been morphing into the old studio system that they were meant to replace. They're they're essentially mini majors now at this point. So I don't know. I, like I said, I, I try to be optimistic whenever I hear there's something new coming around. But like I like I had to do with three men and a baby. If it's just completely out of this, out of this world, ridiculous, then I have to go away. How does that even work? Yeah. So I don't know. We'll uh, but hey, at least this week we had something to talk about other than just people dying. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah, say so that, still a win. Yeah. So there is that. So freaking. Uh, and the very last thing I have for dropping the news uh they actually just did uh a lifetime achievement award for uh, eugene levy yeah a comedic actor eugene levy uh at the newport beach film festival of course it's supposed to be you know in person it's going they're going to have a big banquet dinner and all the good shit but because of corona uh, it was all virtual uh and this is fresh off of eugene's uh, emmy nomination for his role on the show Shit's creek uh that's really been gaining a lot of traction uh, in the last few years and like this is actually his last season. I think all of the the four major leads of that show are nominated for Emmys, including his son Dan Lee, who's also a character on the show. Uh, but like I said, the the, the the nicest thing about it was, of course, they have Eugene do a you know kind of retrospective list of his career. Now, for those of you not aware of Eugene Levy, uh, I first knew of him on SCTV, the sketch comedy show from Canada. Uh, with uh, you know John Candy and you know Martin Short, Andrea Martin, Rick Moranis, uh, you know uh, Joe Flaherty, all those guys, and of course his Shit's Creek co-star Catherine O'Hara was also a cast member of SCTV. Uh, they you know they were basically the Canadian equivalent of SNL, and at one point they actually. Uh, beat SNL at the Emmys for writing, I believe, one year. They actually beat SNL. Uh, but yeah, like I said, very creative people, all the went on to stellar careers, all the people involved with SCTV. And most of the people, a lot of the people that are still alive from SCTV actually uh, zoomed in and, and gave their uh, tribute to Eugene, including Martin Short, Andrea Martin, and Catherine O'Hara. And also uh, another one of his friends, Steve Martin, also dropped by, and of course, you know, other people that know him. And uh, some of the movies that, I mean, just look at his career. Some of the movies he's been involved in, like uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. He was a fucking car salesman and that shit. Uh, I love his stuff with John Candy, like Going Berserk. And my favorite John Candy movie, Armed and Dangerous, is him and Eugene Levy together as you know a comic team. Uh, and then, of course, in recent, more recent years, people know him, uh, especially when I was a teenager, from the American Pie movies. He played Jim's dad, you know. And and then of course he was like I think he's in a couple Steve Martin comedies I think uh, the main one was Bringing Down the House with Steve Martin and Queen Latifah and uh, I think if you go back the the first the first um, Steve Martin film that I can remember as a kid watching and this is where I think I was if I remember correctly probably the first place I was introduced to Eugene Levy was in Father of the Bride two yeah. Uh, yeah, he, right. he plays the guy that buys their house um and then steve you know has all this my you know seller's regret and wants to buy the house back and then actually yeah. I'm looking at it too when you talked about him uh when, you, when i saw that he'd been uh picked up for this lifetime achievement 
Um, he was even in Father of the Bride 1, and he has a small a small role as a guy who's auditioning to be the wedding singer. Yeah, yeah. So He's, he's around forever. And, like, dude, what was that one that we uh, – Best in Show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was about to say this, this shit with uh, uh, Christopher Guest. Yeah, Best in Show. I think he's in, like, the other one, A Mighty Wind. Yeah, he's in A Mighty Wind, too. And then he, he wasn't in Drop Dead Gorgeous, was he? No, he was not in Drop Dead Gorgeous. Because he does a lot of the – I just I can never remember 100% for sure because he does a lot of those mockumentary-style projects. Because mm-hmm. he's got – I think I honestly think like and taking nothing away from like the original cast of, of um, the daily show and that kind of deadpan humor thing they do. Yeah. But honestly, if you go back through the guy's entire film catalog, you really have to, to Eugene Levy for being at like the cutting edge of that deadpan flat humor thing. Like he, he's, he really, he, again, lifetime achievement award. Absolutely. Totally deserving. He's fantastic as a comedic actor. Yeah. I loved him as the car salesman in, in uh, the first National Lampoon's Vacation. He's talking about you know, the family. He, he like uh, gave him the wrong car, the family truckster or whatever the fuck. Oh, no, this is the car. No, this is the car. This is not what we, didn't, we agreed on. We wanted the sport model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get Mr. Griswold. Get his car, please. They're fucking crushing his car and shit. Like, <laughs> I could get your car for you, but I'll tell you, it take about six weeks. Uh, if you're taking a tribe across country, believe me, this is your automobile. I mean, you hate it now. But wait till you drive it. And of course, you come back with the crushed car. He has no choice but to drive the motherfucker. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I, I just think, and I, again, like I said, my favorite John Candy movie is him and uh, John Candy together. And they were a great team, fantastic team, him and John Candy. Uh, and like, uh, I think the movie was, uh, yeah, the movie is about a cop who gets like busted down and also a lawyer who loses his job and they end up working for this fucking uh, security guard company, Guard Dog Security. And then they uncover that this, there's a plot with the union of the, of the uh, security company where they're, like, stealing shit. And that's pretty much the whole gist of the movie, but they, they have so many great scenes in that movie. I think there's one point where they're, like, in a, a porno thing in L.A., and, and they actually beat up some dudes and take their clothes. Like, he's dressed up like a dominatrix, and, like, uh, <laughs> John Candy's dressed up like a giant drag queen, and then... <laughs> I think at one point they walk away, he has like assless chaps. <laughs> I, I like it, it's it's shit like that, but but yeah, like Eugene Levy, for those of you not aware, is one of the great comedic actors. Well, uh, and you, know, you reference awesome. it from, from our teenage years with the American Pie film. Probably yeah. two of the best moments in that film is the first one when when he's explaining, when he's trying to have that awkward masturbation conversation with his kid. Yeah. And he talks to him about, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's like, it's like throwing a ball against the side of the house, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, such a hot it's not a game. So yeah. You got to play the game. You understand, Sam? <laughs> I, I think the second moment you're going to say is, this is my favorite moment of that movie, too. What's your second moment? My, my, second, my second moment is when he catches him with the pie and they're sitting there afterwards and his son, well, I think it's after he had to go to the, the doctor or whatever. He said, I was like, look, well, just tell your mom you ate, we ate the pie. Yeah, that's that, that my favorite line of that damn movie where you see the fucked up pie and he's just sitting there awkwardly. He's like, well, just, uh, just, tell, your mother that, yeah, just tell your mother that we ate it all. <laughs> <laughs> that shit had me rolling, man. 
Oh man, but yeah, he was great in that role as Jim's dad. I think they brought him back for like all the sequels, and then I think there's a bunch of like direct DVD movies that I was gonna say. I think he's been in every single. I know at least all of them with with the main cast with Jim that that he was definitely in them because they kept having you know came came back to being at home, the dad and the American Wedding and all that. But I think they had him in like some of the Bandcamp ones and Naked Mile or whatever the other ones were. I never saw him, but I could have sworn I saw his his face on uh, the box at least a couple of them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he was just kind of that character they would keep bringing back. Jim's dad, for some reason, he always get caught up in these kids' sex capades. So, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that, uh, big shout out to the Gene. Oh, sorry, you, you you cut out. I was just saying he always had that flat delivery. You know, he's honestly probably the best way to describe him is you know from a, a comedic standpoint, right? When you talk about you need a straight man, he's like mm -hmm. a quintessential straight man. He can just he can carry it. And he he manages to put this awkward spin on being the straight man that nobody else can really really match. It's just fantastic. Yeah, but I, I, what I was saying was before I cut out was just shout out to Eugene Levy. That's 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 all I said. Absolutely. Uh, do you have anything on your end? No, dude. You you look as usual. You got all the stuff that's really fit to discuss uh, before I even got got. Got to add my two cents on any of them, so I, I think we're pretty much there. I mean, there's there's little bits and pieces of rambling here and there, but basically we're where we've been for the last couple of months. Nothing's happening in LA. Nothing's really happening in New York. A few things are shooting, or at least saying they're going to start shooting in Atlanta. A few things shooting in New Zealand, and I, I see stuff come across the board where they're trying to get production rolling, um, in like you know Pinewood Studios in, in the UK. But again, not really anything much to, to talk about anything that's happening is so micro crude right now it's it, the, the weird thing is going to be at least with a couple of television programs and even commercials and things they're shooting right now in LA because of the COVID restrictions it's going to get really weird with what they're having to do on the writing to be creative to, to work around them. like you can't do crowd scenes you're having to try to get rid of if you can all extras like it's going to be weird all right folks let's get to the meat and potatoes of this Potato. Now, originally our subject this week was going to be werewolves, but I've lately have been working a uh, graveyard schedule, so like I've just been out of it. Uh, I'm like I'm not working on pretty much sleep or like watching like a little bit of WWE and then I go back to sleep again or something like that. Hold on so a second, though. So does that mean you've been working a vampire schedule? Basically, like <laughs> you know, damn near like freaking like you know sleep during the day, up all night, that kind of shit. And then I had trouble last night sleeping, just like, and I had nothing to do really today except this. I got to work a little bit later, but you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah, I've just been doing that a lot lately. But I decided to kind of switch it up a little bit in terms of like what we're going to be talking about today, uh, mainly because of the fact that uh, I actually posted this on Belsoverse on Facebook uh, and Instagram. Check it out. Uh, I watched the uh, Beyonce uh, Disney Plus film, uh, Black is King. Uh, now, I did like what I, what I refer to as Belsover movie reviews. is a thing I do on Belsoverse where I, uh, I pretty much watch every movie and just get my thoughts on it. Uh, it's been a pretty popular thing. It actually started out it's what started Belsoverse because I started doing the Belser movie reviews on my Facebook page. People were loving it and I was sharing entertainment news and like, dude, you should have a whole site for this or a whole page for this. So I decided to start the Belsoverse. Uh, 
but I decided to bring it back for this one because actually somebody asked me to. And I watched it. Now, as I said in my review of the actual uh, thing itself, uh, for her to do this, Beyonce, it, that's that's like it's very ind- it's very indicative of the level of pop star that she has become. Because like you know, for for a pop star to make their own movie or a movie based on some of their idea, uh, some idea they had, it's nothing new. Uh, you know, think of Purple Rain. Let's go through uh, you know, uh, uh, who's that girl with Madonna? You know, a couple things like that. Uh, Truth or Dare, Madonna. Uh, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, you know, like, like pop stars have made, you know, big length feature films before based on their music or based on their persona. Uh, Beyonce uh, decided to do the whole get down too, uh, except she gave it a little bit of a narrative. Apparently it's supposed to be like this prince that comes from another world and sees our world and see how, sees how cool it is and all this other shit or whatever. And throughout the whole get down is sprinkled with basically Beyonce videos. Uh, I think most of it was shot in Africa. I, I think specifically Nigeria in the be- in the uh, last part of last year. Uh, it just it's just coming out now. But like I said, uh, like I said in the review, the the costume design, the cinematography, all looks fucking fantastic. It looks like a dope ass documentary. You know what I'm saying? Like like Planet Earth type shit. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And, yeah, it looks beautiful. And like I said, the whole thing with the African garb and showing African culture, showing, you know, black people as kings and monarchs and shit, and, you know, showing, you know, black culture. It's really, really beautiful. My one big gripe in the whole get down, and I said this in a review too, I don't like how people are defining the movie itself because, like, they're calling it a short, but it's an hour and a half long. That's a feature length film. Yeah. You know what I'm and also, like, the narrative gets lost whenever it becomes like Beyonce video time. Cause like, she looks beautiful. I mean, she was great. Body looking good. Music is, music was pretty good. You know, and I think a lot of the songs that she used for this like uh, movie were actually songs that she did for the uh, Lion King, the gift album, which is actually, which is actually part of that uh, whole like live action Lion King remake that came out last year. Okay. Um, so it's kind of like the whole, it like that's a kind of Michael Jackson movie if you think about it, because like you know when the whole E.T. thing, E.T. storybook, you know, narrated by Michael Jackson with um, you know songs by Michael Jackson and shit. It's kind of like that if you think about it's, it. It's it's not. And even, um, oh sorry, you cut out. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. To say it's it sounds like it's not even that dissimilar from. Did you ever see the uh, Cirque du Soleil uh, Michael Jackson experience? Yes. Uh, they they thought, used his music to kind of tie in between um, different things for, for the larger narrative. So it's almost like you're, you're making a musical, but the songs you're using for the musical were pre-existing. Or you know what? Blue, Blues Brothers might even be a better example, where you have a narrative that threads through, um, except for, you know, Blues Brothers' original, original dance numbers to pre-existing songs, but they kind of tie everything and keep it, keep it going to push the narrative along. I can't really say it's the same as Blues Brothers, to be honest with you, because of the fact that Blues Brothers had a narrative throughout, and the narrative in that movie never got lost. Like, all the musical numbers and all this shit was mm-hmm. part of the pretty much. Whereas the Beyonce thing, except for the imagery, it's a whole, it's its own shit. Like, the narrative is its own thing, and then Beyonce does a video, and then becomes the narrative again. It's like, oh, oh yeah, we'll get to that. Is it almost more a, um, almost more of like a, a promotional behind you know what do you remember remember back when uh, they used to do those like i'm gonna call them pseudo documentaries about different 
pop stars and stuff in the, in the early years of MTV where they'd follow them around and then they'd, they'd intercut whatever the narrative was about like, you know, if they're hanging out with TLC and they're hanging out with Lisa left eye, right. Or something um, that they, they'd kind of go from that to like all of a sudden you'd roll into a music video and then you'd watch uh, chasing waterfalls and it'd swing back into like, you know, her hanging out in South America or whatever. Something yeah, they call, uh, yeah, they call them like rockumentaries or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, you're right. That's what they were calling them. Where they, they, there was sort of a narrative, but like you said, it got it got lost every time they jump into a song. Yeah, it's, it's like that. I can give you that. Yeah, okay. and also, uh, so Beyonce apparently she's one of the I think it's like six directors of it. Beyonce is one of them, and also she narrates the vast majority of the actual uh, thing itself. And there's also like some. Um, lines from the Lion King, specifically from James Earl Jones as Mufasa. Um, so there's a little bit of that in there. But like I said, overall, I would not be surprised if this gets nominated for an Oscar. Uh, probably in the theatrical short category, which is, I don't know why I would do that because it's so long. I don't, but, think, I don't think it technically could get nominated in the short category because I think it taps out at 60 minutes. But I, I have to look again. It's been a while since I... I looked at what the Academy requirements were. The other thing on that, just as a quick note, um, technically to be, um, to, to be eligible, you have to have had a certain number of weeks in both LA and New York where you had a theatrical run. Um, but I know they've been talking about, and again, I, I'm not up on, on the, uh, the final decision what they're working at, but obviously with COVID, um, it's either going to be a very small pool of eligible uh, films this year, or they're going to have to make an accommodation. Yeah. But yeah, that, that came out, and I did a review on that. The other uh, music video-related thing that came out this week, which was like a huge social media hit, was uh, WAP by Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion. Now, on, if you guys are not familiar with uh, Cardi B or Meg Thee Stallion's videos, they're basically softcore porn. Uh, actually, one of her videos was actually full-on porn. It's like actually show uh, blowjobs and penetration. Like, it's like wow. Okay. Uh, isn't, so, isn't, <laughs> Cardi, isn't didn't, didn't Cardi B come out a little while ago and say she used to um, she used to roll Johns back in the day? Yep. Yeah. Both uh, actually, both Meg and Cardi are basically strippers that made it big. So just, so just so people, because I we should probably give a little background for people who don't aren't familiar with the terminology. So um, rolling a john would be if a, a usually a prostitute, sometimes it could be a stripper, would um, go with a guy um, to their room, you know, supposedly for for sex or something, and then they would uh, either get the guy drunk enough that they fall asleep, or more often than not, they they drug them. Now whether that was putting like you know eye drops in something to make them vomit or roofing them or whatever it was, they'd put them in a position where they're indisposed and then they'd rob them. In fact, what was that? They did them. There, there was some movie. Um, I didn't see it. My wife saw it a little while ago. There was a movie uh, based on that, right? Uh, Hustlers. Hustlers. Yeah. Cardi B was in that, wasn't she? Yes, she was actually. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> knowing that that's the world she came from, I'm just going to say, having not really seen every music videos, I'm not surprised <laughs> that she has some that go all the way to, to, to porn central. I mean, you remember, um, since we're going to go deep dive on this anyway, you remember what was it, uh, After Dark on BET? 
yeah, BT After Dark. Yeah, like yeah. like basically, yeah, yeah. It, it would be a perfect video for BT After Dark. I was gonna say that right there was like as far as cable went, like they went right up to the line as far as you could on cable for for anything sexual. I mean, they literally strip clubs and all that stuff and pasties and g strings and like they're like, okay, what's the line? And then they'd stand on top of the line and hope that nobody threw a fit about it. So doesn't yeah, that's line twenty years later. That's basically all the video is like pretty much like G strings and pasties and uh, a weird two weird ass cameos. One was James Corden, and another one was fucking uh, Kylie Jenner. The one that the Kylie Jenner one, people really pissed off about like why the fuck is she in this video? But she looks good in the video. Actually, all all the women in the video look good. No, but I was gonna say so. Look, a, a video with a bunch of uh, good looking women not wearing a lot. Okay, I can understand Kylie showing up. Why was James Corden there? What the fuck was he doing? It was some weird segment where they're like, is Cardi and Meg the stallion? They were like going through this room with different corridors. You go into a room, it's like a different thing. I think at one point they open the door, open the door, it's like a library. James Corden is in there doing like Harry Potter type shit. It was weird. Like it's just out of nowhere. Like he's like reading a book, like doing spells or some bullshit like that. Right. It was, yeah, it's it strange. But yeah, the the, same, the Kylie Jenner one, all she does is just walk down a hall and walk into a room. That's what, and she's not wearing a lot. And like I said, she does look good, but people like, you know, just really against the whole, you know, they just really consider the Kardashian family as a whole as culture vultures. So it's like, why the fuck is Kylie Jenner in here? Like, and yeah, there's a lot of back backlash on that. Also, backlash on the whole imagery in terms of women because of the fact if uh, I think one rapper in particular, CeeLo Green is saying that, you know, the the image of the video is pretty much just promoting women to be thoughts and fucking um, gold diggers and shit. And, uh, he also went out to Nicki Minaj, who was also not, who's not in the video, but he went out to her too. And like, but yeah, it's, it, it depends on who you, whose site you go to. Like, some people are praising this and it's fucking bad, badass video. Other ones are saying that it's disgusting and deplorable. So like, but. Did you say it's promoting women as thoughts? Oh, yeah. Uh, the uh, oh yeah, you're not familiar with this term. No, I'm. I I literally recently, like in the last couple of weeks, became aware because I, I heard somebody else talking about it. And I figured out what it was, but again, making sure we're as inclusive as possible. Because you got to remember too, dude. We're we're a bit international now at this point. Oh yeah, that's right. Some things it might be worth letting people know kind of what the word is without having to to do all of that. So thoughts, as I understand it, T H O T S means that hoe over there or that whore over there, but. If it's poor, technically, it should be twat, T-W-O-T, right? But it's, yeah, basically, a thought, you know, skeezer, you know, like, I don't know the different, like, lang- I don't know what the language is, barriers in terms of, like, who's watching, who's listening to us, stuff like but basically, a promiscuous woman, you know, that's it, basically what a thought is. Basically, what they're trying to get down to is that they're, they're, they're just degrading women to the point of nothing more than sex objects. And it's women that's degrading women. Right. But again, the, the point is that the frustration, regardless of whether it's a man doing it or a woman doing it, the core is they're upset that they're portraying women as nothing more than sex, sex objects. Basically, yeah. But like I said, because of the whole release of both of these uh, projects, both of them are musically inclined, we decided, you know, for the meat potatoes of this particular show, let's go ahead and talk about some of our favorite music videos from back in the day. Uh, and like, keep in mind, this is, you know, we're, we're a bit older, so we remember, you know, MTV back when they just ran music videos or BET that had, had beat, that also, same thing, mostly ran music videos. 
uh, and then you know, VH1 whole network dedicated to it. And then of course there was other ones that are now defunct. Like the one I had, I, I mentioned on the show before, the Box uh, Music Television U Control, which is actually a whole music video network. All they showed was music videos, and they would have like a little scroll at at the bottom of the screen that would show a music video, a phone, uh, like an 800 number. And a number that you can dial in, like, hey, I call this number. Uh, hey, the box, you know, what number do you, uh, what, what video do you want to see? You dial in the number and then you show it and they would charge you for it. But yeah, all they show was music video. But that's really how I really got to the whole music video revolution was through really the box. Because uh, like BT show videos, yes. MTV show videos, yes. But the box showed everything like rock, rap, uh, RB videos. You know, whatever, you know what I'm saying? And then, like, in terms of the ones that I love the most, especially going back to my younger years, uh, of course, this is a pretty much a category on itself, Michael Jackson videos. You know, he was really the one that really changed the landscape of what a music video is. Because before that, it was basically just maybe a dude, maybe some like a band or whoever, like having a concert, more or less, and they just getting it on tape. So, yeah, well, a live well, and to that point, I mean, if you look at how music videos were originally, um, what, what you ended up with was essentially one day to shoot. It would be one location. Um, the most you'd normally see with somebody is they, they might have a wardrobe change or two. And then, you know, it's a, it's a, it would be something akin to a multi-camera shoot where they've got a bunch of different angles of the same thing. And then they go back, cut it together and throw it in there. And the budgets for them, What's really kind of funny, if you look at it, the budget for music videos um, in the 1980s, adjusting for inflation, what they are now, they pretty much are the same. So there was a bubble that happened that Michael Jackson absolutely was at the forefront of that probably peaked sometime around 2004, 2005, about the time Napster really started um, just destroying the profits of the record industries and music sharing became a thing and then iTunes and the rest of it. Um, during that little area in there, I mean, there were guys, I still remember watching episodes of Cribs. And even when I was in film school, there were, there were entire directors, their whole career was nothing but music videos. They were making millions of dollars and all they ever did was music videos, no TV, no commercials, no feature films, just music videos. So it, it really is in a lot of ways an art form unto itself. And like you said, um, yeah. Michael Jackson was absolutely at the forefront of it. And of course, yeah. the biggest one, probably the peak, high watermark for for his stuff as we went in depth and we, we did um earlier episodes it's thriller really because yeah. that was a short film that was a, a music video yeah we mentioned that we mentioned thriller on both our john landis episode and our rick becker episode because in fact both of those guys were heavily involved in thriller uh and like i said michael jackson's videos you know billy g beat it thriller and then you go to other ones like, you know, Smooth Criminal, Bad, et cetera. They were basically short films. That's why I, like, I, I brought the comparison, the Beyonce comparison to Michael Jackson, because like, those were pretty much short films. Um, and like I say, he even did a whole movie of pretty much just his videos. And that's what we mentioned earlier, Moonwalker, uh, which we're going to do an episode on. Uh, but uh, yeah, like that, that, that is a whole category of stuff. And then also, speaking on the same vein, Prince, the artist. Yeah. He also fucking was innovative in terms of his music videos. Uh, and especially around the time of Purple Rain, he really like took it to a whole nother level, especially with like, you know, when Doves Cry and stuff like that. And you know, uh You know what? Like, 
I'm just as yeah. I'm thinking about it, to be fair, there's actually, there's one group that, if I remember right on the timing, was just barely ahead of Michael Jackson that arguably I'd say made the first big budget music video. And that would have to be the wall for Pink Floyd. Yeah. I actually don't agree with you on that. Pink Floyd is the wall. Because the more I think about it, because that's, it's actually just as we're doing the deep dive for a second, that's actually one of my favorite, favorite uh, music videos ever. And it's one of those ones that um, the first time I still remember the first time I saw any bit of it on like VH1 or whatever, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, because I, I mean, you and I, we no secrets here. I, I've never done drugs. It's just not my, not my thing. Not in, not into weed, not any of that other stuff. It wasn't psychedelics. It's just not my bag. But I remember watching this going, what the hell? Like these guys have to be on something. And uh, a few years later, um, after I'd seen it the first time, a, a DVD uh, came out and prior to the start of the, the movie, there was a, about a 20 or 30 minute, um, artist statement where they talked about the creation music video the mm -hmm. underlying themes behind the wall as an album and what they're trying to do as a movie um, and then when I sat down and watched it understanding having a frame of reference um, far as something that you consider to be a, a non-linear non-traditional narrative um, mm -hmm. an artistic piece fantastic yeah. still stands the test of time so if you've if you've never seen it um it's out there. I mean, it's not, it's not as easily accessible as something like Thriller, but it is a fantastic just piece of art. I mean, it really is. Yeah, the, uh, the whole get down, yeah, uh, with the wall, yeah, it was a movie that they put together. It was like uh, artist conceptual, like pretty much just a concept, a whole movie of concept art, pretty much. And yeah. uh, the particular video that you're talking about with uh, uh, the, the title song, Another Brick in the Wall, didn't they have like some sequence where it's like, faceless children like falling into a fucking meat grinder there well there's there's a whole bunch of very um very kind of visceral and and disturbing imagery so the the idea behind it so the album the wall pink floyd prior to this they're one of the biggest rock bands on the planet um and so they they got this idea for the wall and they started working on it built this this album together and the story is essentially almost like um uh, an exploration to the psychological makeup uh, of an adult man um, and kind of how you, through experiences and through the things that have happened to you, and a lot of it, you know, there's autobiographical pieces from different band members that they've pulled into it, but how we all as individuals essentially build a wall around ourselves to uh, be able to essentially exist and live in the world. So this is where that kind of conceptual artistic piece comes in. And then there's, you know, there's always things outside trying to break down the wall, whether that's if you build the wall too big, too high, now you can't have a relationship with anybody. And so there's, again, it's very, very multifaceted and gets some interesting stuff. Well, they, they've written this album, they're performing this album. If I remember correctly, the original, I don't know that they were able to do this um, or how many times they did it, but one of the original things they're gonna do on tour was they were gonna set the band up, build a wall, and there comes a point in the album where they break down the wall. And so they'd have a wall between them and the audience and it'd be getting broken down through their playing of the concert. And then when they finally get towards the end, they tear down the wall and then, you know, it kind of connects them to the audience now in this different way. Well, they managed to do that in this, this film. And I think it's, it's the full length of the album. I think it's almost two hours if I remember correctly. I, I can't remember the running time on it. It's, it's a long one, but it's a good one. I, you know, every, every year or two, I, I have to sit down and block out some time to watch it. Cause it's again, from an artistic creation standpoint, it's, it's fantastic. And one of the best things I've, I've seen towards that it's disturbing. It's jarring. It's, it's really brilliant. It really is. 
Yeah. And also a couple other music videos since we're talking about artistic innovations. Um, Aha, Take On Me, which was a big favorite in the 80s, you know, with the whole live action slash animation thing that they did in there. And, you know, like it's been copied God knows how many times in like television and um, film and shit. Most of the things I remember they did it on Family Guy with Chris Griffin. I thought that was hilarious. With Stewie? Because Chris. Oh no, it was Chris. You're right. Yeah, it was Chris. What was the one with Stewie and Brian? Um, that was a, that was another one of those eighty ones. That was one on uh, Brian Adams. Uh, the shit from uh, from uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. Uh, Anything I do, I do it for you. That shit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because Chris, Chris fall like if I remember right, he like he's in the grocery store. He ends up falling like behind the uh, into the back of the cooler, and that's when he does the take on me one. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, another one that was really innovative in the eighties, uh, uh, Peter Gabriel Sledgehammer. Oh yeah, the stop the whole stop motion thing, and it's like him like you know he's like, the whole jerky style of it, like him him with constantly all this animation around him like uh like like i think one lyric one lyric is like if i had a speed train and then the train is like around his head and then like see him like you see him there like next next to fish and then there i think at one point like chickens are dancing like naked chickens is like like it was really weird man and like and then of course at the end is like a black choir it was all over the place, man. And, my, my dad but, told me uh, in the in the eighties when he was in college that what a party was was you'd go to somebody's house who had cable, and they'd turn on MTV, and that was the music. Like there was there was no radio, there was no DJ. It was just MTV in the background. Back when it truly was just music videos all day long, and that was that was your DJ for the night. Yeah, and then like uh, other videos like that. Uh, actually, there were some videos that were pretty simplistic but were enjoyable. Two. It, the, at the top of my head that I really like, uh, you can call me Al by Paul Simon, the one with him and Chevy Chase. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, you remember that one? Like, well, like it's uh, it's two. It's basically just a bare room. There's two chairs, and Bill. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Paul Simon and Chevy Chase walk in. You can see the the crazy height difference between the two. Like Paul is like five five. Chevy's like six five. And they sit down, they start, and Chevy Chase starts lip syncing to the song. Paul Simon says nothing throughout the whole, I think, I think he does like the chorus. That's about it. And then at one point they're like, uh, there's like a, uh, jazz solo or a sax solo or whatever that, and they start doing it together. Like, da, 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 da. It's like a little dance they do or whatever. So that was a very simple video, but very effective. Another one that I like, which was also very simple, but like uh, really like was really a big hit too, both the song and the video. Don't worry, be happy by Bobby McFerrin. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then of course they had that had the late Robin Williams in it, and another comedian, another actor who's like a uh, comedian. I keep I forget the actor's name, but he did a bunch of like I would see him in a bunch of TV shows doing physical humor, and like he was very good at it. But it's just him, Bobby McFerrin, and Robin Williams just goofing around throughout this whole video, wearing little different costumes. And there's one just just one set where there's like a fireplace, and they're just like dancing around. And then of course the song itself is basically all Bobby McFerrin, just like no instruments at it. It's just Bobby McFerrin, you know, doing replications of instruments. So just <laughs> don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry, be happy. They love, but it's like it's just the energy of those three guys and that song. It, yeah, it was a big hit video, man. 
You know, before we move out of the 80s, um, there, there was two other ones. One I know you're a big fan of was uh, uh, Citizens on Patrol. <laughs> did, they do a, did they do a video for Citizens on Patrol? I, I feel like they had to. They did one for every movie in the 80s. That's another thing. That's actually, thank you for bringing that up. That's another thing I want to get into. Like, every single music video that had, like, the, the lead song of a movie or whatever, they would always, like, the, the video itself would usually be trash. And they would always uh, feature clips of the movie itself. The best example, Ghostbusters with Ray Parker Jr. is like, uh, and the weird part about it is that video is directed by Ivan Reitman. Well, there's a lot of weird stuff about a, a, a lot of things from the 80s movies, and I'll give you that one. But one of my favorite ones to always bring up has Tom Hanks. And <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah you know, I, I know exactly. Dan <laughs> <laughs> Aykroyd did it from uh, Dragnet. I think this song was called Pagan or Pagans, if I'm not mistaken. But it, yeah. if you've never seen it, just search Dan Aykroyd Tom Hanks music video on YouTube. <laughs> Yeah, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, and and Dan Aykroyd do the absolute worst 1980s white guy rap yelling at the camera, and it is it is truly phenomenally bad. It's like in the same vein, it's the music video equivalent of Showgirls. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. But since you brought up Dan Aykroyd, and since we're still in the 80s, fucking the We Are the World video. That's another simple video, but the thing yeah. about it complicated was the level of star power that it had. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you got like pretty much. I think I think they recorded it right after like the Grammys one year, and they just did like an all night session. Like all these huge stars just decided to come in and do this shit. Cool. So the song itself uh, was produced by um, what's his name, uh, Quincy Jones, written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, who are among the two star among the stars featured in the video. And then you have people like what, Dino, pretty much most of the major American film, major American pop stars. At that time, we're in that damn video. Yeah, what? Uh, Cindy Lauper. Let me ask you a question since we're just two two friends sitting here talking. Yeah. Do you like that song? The song is okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> nah, I, I'm not going to say I love We Are the World. I'm, the, the song is okay. It's, it's a frustrating one for me because it's like, Again, you, you, you can list off, you can go down the list of all the great musical talent that's involved. And I'm just like, yes, 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 yes. But this is one of those ones where it's like, it's like you tried to force a super band together or something. And now you're sitting here going, ah, I, there's just, there's not, I don't like it. It's not. Yeah, go down the list of some of the people that actually had in that motherfucker. Um, Huey Lewis, Bruce Springsteen, fucking uh, Cindy Lauper. Uh, fucking Tina Turner, uh, I think Billy Joel, I think, uh, fucking Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. Uh, literally the one song, again, it doesn't really matter who you list. It's pretty much the one song for me. Any Quincy Jones even, talking about the great, great musical producer himself. It's one, it's like the song you go, I'm like, no, nope, I can't go with it. It just, I don't know, I don't know what it is about it, but there's just, there's no there there for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I fucking, I'm still I'm still listening to people like fucking like Kenny Rogers, all of the Jacksons, yeah. like in in inclusion to Michael, and inexplicably Dan Aykroyd. What do you mean inexplicably? He's the head of the Blues Brothers. He's the only one who's still left. Yeah, well, for He's most a of them. musical talent, dude. Yeah, but yeah, you see, like it's all these major uh, pop stars, 
And then in the very back, you see Dan Aykroyd. Here's, here's what I'm going to put out for Dan Aykroyd, because I feel like the man has not gotten his due as a triple threat. And honestly, you could argue a quadruple threat. The only reason I'm going to say argue quadruple threat is because he does have dramatic chops. He just tends towards comedy because that's his bread and butter. Yeah. He is a singer, and he is a dancer. I mean, you watch Blues Brothers, the stuff that that guy can do. He's, he is a multi-talented beast. Yes, he is. Yeah, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a whole thing. Blues and I can go down. You know, you know I me. Mean? We can go down the road. We can get in the yeah. muddy waters. All kinds of great blues. Yeah. But Dan Aykroyd and the Blues Brothers are still gonna slide in there because they managed to put together a hell of a band and do some great musical um, renditions of old songs and originals. Yeah, we we're gonna do a whole thing on Dan Aykroyd. I, I feel it coming. So we're gonna do a whole thing on Dan Aykroyd. Shout out to yeah. Dan. Yeah, we're gonna do a deep dive on Dan Aykroyd. Uh, but like, uh, since we're doing it, didn't it, didn't the uh, UK stars do something similar? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they. I'm pretty sure they did. I, I, was, I, think, they did, I think I think they did, but it was like Christmas themed. Yeah, something like that. Do Do they know it's Christmas or some shit like that? And I knew. I remember it was like uh, Wham, and a bunch of them other people. They did something similar for Christmas. And Madonna, uh, she thinks she's British now. Yeah, she thinks she's British. <laughs> and speaking of Madonna, uh, let's talk about probably what a lot of people consider her greatest video, uh, Lack of Prayer. Arguably. You yeah, you remember at the time, there was a lot of controversy about it because of like, the whole thing that she has in it about, you know, Christianity. And I think I want, she uh, depicts black, uh, Jesus as black, uh, which is controversial at the time. Uh, I think the dude that played Jesus was actually... Uh, uh, as an actor, I think his name is just Leon, but he does like a bunch of different movies. He was in Above the Realm. He was in Five Heartbeats. Uh, I think he, he uh, if you watch the Temptations biopic, he plays David Ruffin. But yeah, he was Jesus. And then there's like one point there's like a, she does something with her hands and then it, like she shows her hands and you see this like uh, has the crucifixion signs in her hands and it's like a black choir and all this other stuff. So yeah. But again, I mean, that's like, that's again on the, the coattails, I think, of a lot of what was going on from, uh, from Michael Jackson and kind of up in the game on, on music videos. Because prior to it, like you said, even, even those simple ones we were talking about before that seemed to do really well, they wrote a lot more on music. And I can never remember who wrote the song, but that song, Video Killed the Radio Star. The song Video Killed the Radio Star, you know the song I'm talking about? Yeah, the very first MTV music video. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because when, when you look at it, and that's why I'm saying it, you have to give it to Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson being at the forefront of it, everybody felt they kind of had to up their game, whether that was being more controversial or more artistic in, in the way they showed stuff. I know we're, we're slowly rolling into the 90s, and we can get into some really interesting stuff from, you know, Nine Inch Nails and kind of how they pushed the envelope in some some respects. and. Um, I mean, I, one of my favorite ones I want to talk about is um, Rabbit in the Headlights uh, from Uncle. I don't know if you know that video. No. I, I posted that one on my Facebook a while back. I'll, I'll send it to you again. It's one of the most simplistic and yet disturbing music videos I've ever seen. And it's not, it's not disturbing in that they're getting over the top or, or ridiculous with controversial imagery. It's just a very... I, honestly, there's no other way to put it. It's a fantastically directed and produced 
essentially short film that that has disturbing imagery and an ending that just sticks with you. Uh, and, and again, that's kind of that's kind of where you you had to go with a lot of this stuff because if you want to get noticed, and let's be honest, I mean, especially in pop music, it doesn't even matter if we're talking hip hop or what we term pop. If you want to be popular, you have to get attention, and a lot of times, getting that attention means pushing the envelope um, where you can push it and. They had the budget, so if you're willing to go there and wanted to get a little, uh, little crazy, video was the place to do it. And uh, one thing I did notice, particularly with uh, '80s like uh, R&B tracks, like it was a lot of, a uh, lot of, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, like most of the videos were shot with like that haze, you know, like a little haze on the on the camera itself, and then of course the artists would be you know, all dressed up to the nines, and usually be in a suit or in a really nice dress. And uh, it'd be like, for some reason, they'd be in like some bedroom or some shit like that. And it'd be like, just like silk, like, like silk, like sheets and shit and like a lot of wind, silk yeah. and wind. They would either, they would either do dry ice to have, have the atmosphere hug the floor, they'd fog it. And then a yeah. ton of jib and dolly shots. Yes. A lot of them. Most of them all start with a dolly shot, like just a dolly craning in somewhere. The artist is like at a piano. And you start singing the song, and like the lighting and shit, and like yeah, the, yeah, the brothers are always in the suit. Most of them have fades and jerry curls and shit. The ladies had the crazy '80s hairdos, like patting the bell and shit like, like that. And like I remember a lot of it was a lot of like Anita Baker had a lot of videos like that. Uh, Patty LaBelle, um, Renee and uh, Angela Wimbush from Renee and Angela. Uh, Whitney Houston had a couple like that. Uh, even though a lot of her stuff was like uh, kind of pushing it. Like she had, uh, like I'm Your Baby Tonight is all in black and white. And then like, uh, what's that? I Want to Dance to Somebody. That was like super bright and big 80s hair when he attempted to dance. Um, <laughs> shit like that, you know what I'm saying? And it, yeah, it's very consistent. And then with the artists themselves, the male artists, man, like freaking like I said, they usually had like a nice suit on with like the big shoulder pads. Um, uh, like I say, you, the styles of the times, either a curl or like a fade or whatever. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was an interesting time, man, to see how the videos were like that at the time. Then you go to 80s rock videos, most of those were just like concerts. So, yeah. Yeah, the concert or like, it's just the band, they're doing the song or whatever, like like uh, what Van Halen Jump. That's a concert thing. Uh, what's that? Guns N' Roses, uh, Welcome to the Jungle concert. Molly uh, Crew. Molly Crew, what is a uh, what's that shit they have? Uh, Actually, probably one of their biggest ones that wasn't necessarily there was there was probably a little more high concept for rock video was Hot for Teacher. Yeah, that's, yeah, I got you. Uh, and then um, actually, you know the videos that I did like that like it was basically all the same fucking video, the fucking Robert Palmer videos. Rock Robert Palmer, refresh me. Okay, he was like this. Like smaller British guy, he always had these tall supermodel chicks, real pale skin. They always had like the slick back hair, and they'd be like in dresses, and they had like the fucking like belts and shit. They always had wore like black dresses with red belts. And they were all thin supermodel chicks, like a uh, simply irresistible. I remember he used that look in like commercials and shit. I think the chicks just did a commercial one time. But yeah, that look. If you look it up, man, Robert Palmer. I think uh, addicted to love. And simply irresistible. They're basically the same fucking video, uh, like same thing. Robert Palmer sitting there singing, tall, beautiful fucking supermodels behind him with uh, pale skin and slick back hair and and eyeshadow like crazy. 
and red lipstick. I remember that. So they out, they had a very distinct look. You gotta look it up. And then when you see, you're like, oh, that shit. What because what I would remember when we're talking about like 80s rock videos, it's one of two things. Either you're gonna have like Kiss or something where it really is it's like a live concert video, and you're gonna you're gonna see them up on stage and people losing their minds, you know, essentially kind of um single song clips of, of concert um music videos to something more along the lines of like White Snake or something where it's like hot chicks and cars or like ZZ Top, right? ZZ Top always had these crazy custom rods that they put together and it'd be uh, the, the brothers out front playing the guitars and then, you know, some hot model chick that's like, you know, crawling all over the hood of their car or something like that. Yeah, the uh, Tiny Katane. That was one from White Snake, right? Yeah, that was the White Snake. But I was thinking even like ZZ Top, it was like they always had like those those like 1930s rods that they'd, they'd redone everything on. They have like an old Ford or a Chevy. They'd done a bunch of crazy stuff too. And then they'd have some hot, like they'd be out in some desert in the middle of, you know, West Texas or something cruising up on the car they'd have a concert in the middle of the road and there'd be like some chick crawling around on the hood of their car like that was that was kind of the the, the two ways you went for rock it was either hot chicks and cars and motorcycles or it was you know clips from a concert and something like that in the 80s yeah now let's go ahead and uh because we got a little, little bit of time here let's go ahead and switch up and go into the 90s a little bit now at the 90s at the forefront of that in terms of music videos was rap that's when rap started really starting to explode in terms of mainstream um culture it's mainstream explosion on the good shit now the first couple of rap videos you know like stuff like will smith you know parents just don't understand the whole, basically the the uh the look of the parents don't just understand the video is the exact same look as the intro to the fresh prince of bel-air the yeah. whole you know white the whole white room with the fucking graffiti all over and shit and you know parents is you know parents just don't understand that shit and then what's the other one uh like, and then you go to like other artists in the eight black artists in the eighties, like uh, Big Daddy Kane and Slick Rick, who had stories to this shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I like one of my favorite videos, especially like for rap artists, was a uh, Slick Rick's uh, children's story. If you ever remember that song, like, uh, it's a little uh, like, uh, nah, uh, are you ready, kids? Yeah, here we go. Once upon a time, not long ago, you know that that whole little rhyme yeah. with Slick Rick. He's in the bed. Uh, throughout the whole video with these two chicks telling this story or whatever. And then the video itself is basically, they do like Charlie Chaplin, which is weird, but it's like a black kid and then like the white cops are like the fucking uh, the Bowery Boys or the Keystone Cops, that kind of shit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where it's like the, the fast, you know, that very fast, you know, comical, like running around, that kind of shit. Yeah. Where it's where they, they uh, undercrank the camera so it's like a really awkward kind of like, like if you watch old old footage from like newsreels and stuff and like you know, World War One or whatever, where everybody seems to be moving at a weird pace. Yes. They they undercrank the camera, so instead of getting 24 frames, you're only getting 22, and so when they play it back at regular speed, it looks weird, kind of still. Yeah. And, and towards the end of the 80s, uh, big crossover in terms of genres, uh, Run DMC and uh, Aerosmith Walk This Way, where it's like basically a concert and started out as a regular rap video, which is Run DMC rapping in the room, then it bust in a Steven Tyler bust into the room and it's them doing the concert. And then they say, you know, they're doing the concert together. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, mixing genres together. And then like, uh, towards basically the beginning of the eight, the nineties, uh, you see people like fucking Ice T emerging and yeah. really NWA kind of changed the game because of the fact they showed, you know, where, where, black neighbor, but, I was just say before we jump all the way to NWA, because by by the time you start getting to like NWA, Tupac, Biggie, like you, you're gonna end up with a, a a shift in how they did them, and I feel like we're jumping past 
some amazing choreographed dance and parachute pants if we don't. Oh, I was about to say, yeah. I, I, I know where are you going with this. I, yeah, I was trying to skip past. We, we, no, dude, we got it. We got to cover the evolution, man. It was right, yeah. Okay, so prior to you know NWA and all those other shit, <laughs> rappers were you know a little more poppy in terms of their appearance, uh, a little more fashionable. Uh, so before <laughs> the, the, the before Run I'm sorry, before. Racker on DMC, but before NWA, there's a little period there that was ran by two particular rappers, uh, MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. It's Hammer Time. We talked about his commercial, man. Or not his commercial, it's cartoon. We got, we got yeah, it. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second. But yeah, first Vanilla Ice with the Ice Ice Baby, you know, the whole thing. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yeah, ding, 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 that bull. Oh, yeah, I got a ding in mind, so my sample's cool. This still is the stupidest explanation for a sample I've ever heard. Of course, the like I said, the first one, uh, Vanilla Ice, Ice, Ice Baby, which samples uh, David Bowie and Queens under pressure. But uh, the famous explanation given by Vanilla Ice is that they're not the same song. His explanation is uh, the uh, Queen song is this. But my song is this. See, completely different. Fucker. Here's the thing. I, this is going to be one of the only times I do it, but in defense of, the, of Vanilla Ice, and those words specifically, in defense of Vanilla Ice, isn't going to come out of my mouth very often. Mm-hmm. In his defense, where we are today with music and everything else, sampling has become, whether through mashups, hip hop, whatever else you want to come up with, it has become an accepted usage, essentially, of, of the art form of music. And so, part of what they were hammering him on at the time was that it wasn't technically original music and that, um, you know, it was in some form or another plagiarism. And they were, they were in some ways, I think, insinuating that he was somehow just a step short of being Millie Vanilli, which I don't think is entirely fair. He wasn't lip singing. He was still doing his own stuff. He was just in the unfortunate position of being far ahead of, of kind of where the music industry eventually went with sampling. Because now, I mean, you can hardly pick a song that doesn't have some amount of sampling from something else, especially if it's considered to be a pop song. I mean, there's just, it's, it's just an accepted thing that, that happens at large scale. Um, I'd say his single biggest thing was he should have been like, he should have rather than tried to trying to um, explain his way out of it. He should have just owned it and be like, yeah, we sampled it. It's a great, great hook and it worked really well. And we took it and made it our own thing. And, you know, this is an original creation that used a, a baseline from, a great artist that's that's unfortunately i think the way he should have gone and he didn't go that way and so ultimately I, you know that's kind of what they used to put a spike in his career yeah white uh vanilla ice himself you know white boy dressing around with the big uh parachute pants and he had a fade his hair styled into a fade and he actually he won the first televised uh presentation of a grammy for best rap song was uh, Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby. But the actual first Grammy given ever was Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff for Parents Just Don't Understand. That was the very first one ever. But also, like I said, he was super popular at the time. He had his own movie. I think it's called, I think it's called like Cold as Ice or Cool as Ice or some shit like that. Where he's like supposed to be like this bad boy that comes into a new town that doesn't understand rap or some bullshit like that. Kind of like a 
a, intended to be a, 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 a hip hop version of Footloose or some shit like that. Well, I was gonna say it was it was a, a really bad, ham-fisted, uh, overly white Hollywood uh, version of of what I think Eight Mile would eventually become, where he's he's trying desperately to kind of stake a claim, be like, hey, I can be involved in in, uh, in hip hop and rap, and I understand it enough. But ultimately, he's just like. You know, to my, I don't think he's from California, but he comes off like just some, you know, kind of privileged white kid from the beach. Yeah. Rob Van Winkle. Yeah. Uh, so, but also in the vein of Vanilla Ice was another rapper uh, with the parachute pants who really made them parachute pants popular was fucking MC Hammer. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, yeah, sir. Mr. MC Hammer with the probably one of the greatest rap hits of all time. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. We also sampled uh, a great song, particularly Super Freak from Rick James, which he did give him credit for. I get, that's the one thing between Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer. Yeah, I sampled this shit and I'm giving Rick James credit. Because Rick James, I think they won a Grammy or some shit like that. And like, and Rick James got credit too. He got one too. So. What I was going to say was, you know, his, his, what ended up, I think, killing MC Hammer more than the parachute pants, unfortunately, was all the problems that happened on the business side of stuff where, where they ended up getting financially in a bit of a problem. And then he wasn't able to, you know, deliver on a sophomore or a junior album that, that came up uh, anywhere near as successful as his debut um, with, uh, with Can't Touch This. Because I mean, keeping it back to the music video thing and why I think it's important, talking about kind of the the evolution of it. At that point in time, whether you're looking at Ice Ice Baby or especially Can't Touch This, the way that you were showcasing hip hop most of the time in a music video was it was choreographed dance. You had a ton of choreographed dance, which pretty much in a large in large respect went away. I mean, you don't see choreographed dance. Um, at all really in hip hop videos anymore. There's there's dancers, there's dancing, but you gen, generally kind of at that point shifted, I think, to become almost exclusively in the vein of, of pop music. Yeah, you rarely see it from, you see uh, backup dancers, but you rarely see the dancing from the actual artist. That's what was different with the MC Hammer and the Vanilla Ice. They did the whole shit themselves, you know, especially Hammer, man. Hammer was killing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, then like freaking Hammer, like going to the Hammer thing, yeah, his big downfall was he had a lot of hangers on and he was a very generous person he was just giving money you know like his stage show was way too big for what he for what it was like he had like god knows how many dancers and all this other shit and he was just like paying them out of his own pocket man. well he's, he's one of those guys he's a he's i mean i think you have to just argue it he he's a he was an artist he was a musician he was a performer he was not a businessman and unfortunately he didn't have anybody in his camp who, who gave a damn about him. They were all, um, you know, anyone who had access to the financial dealings were just out for themselves. And, you know, the, the kind of re ridiculous thing about it, if you look at it, it's all most of them ended up doing was, was hurting themselves in the end because they drained him dry. And if they'd have been better at kind of watching out for him and helping him, it could have been something that over the, you know, 20, 30 year run or even a 10 year run, they would have ended up making more money had they been, um, you know, good stewards of, of what uh, he made available to him and if they'd actually been, um, you know, honest brokers and honest dealers with him and helped him out and you know, helped him to, to make the kinds of decisions that they needed to turn, to build something lasting rather than just, you know, milking it dry. And then as we all know, as you were getting to, he ends up, you know, broke and essentially destitute by the time the hammer phrase and parachute pants kind of went away. 
Yeah, same thing with uh, another group that really got popular. And actually, they produced the very first movie <laughs> I ever saw in the theater, Kid and Play. And they, of course, that popular movie, House Party. They became a popular act at the time. I think they were the first act, uh, first hip-hop act ever to have a cartoon. They had a cartoon on NBC, Kid and Play. Uh, and actually, funny enough, one of the voices was a very young Martin Lawrence, who was also in House Party. You know what I'm saying? But they brought that uh, mainstream hip-hop culture with House Party because, in fact, House Party was a, a moderate hit. And, of course, it produced, like, four or five sequels. Uh, I think only three of them, two of them actually started Kid and Play. But, um, yeah, they were popular, too. They really brought that hip-hop culture to the mainstream. And then, um, like I said, since we talk about that with the whole shift from dance to a harder edge going into the 90s, I'm going back to where I was going initially before we went to the MC Hammer Vanilla ISD tour. We got to uh, do there was a, yeah, We had to do it. I, I got to, there was an emergence of a, a rougher, more street-oriented uh, hip-hop emergence, particularly from out here in the West Coast. Uh, and like I said, groups like NWA and then Ice-T and people like that were talking about, you know, what the ravages of like living out here in like South Central California, dealing with police brutality, dealing with, you know what I'm saying, like black on black crime and just portraying this image of tough and they're talking about guns and you know, talking about smoking weed and talking about having sex with women and just very explicit stuff that really hadn't been heard before. Um, but, you know, they, they, the harder edge was selling, man. They were really getting it, especially the NWA look with all the Raiders gear. That's back when, you know, Raiders were actually out here in Los Angeles. So everybody was rocking that. My dad was rocking that shit. My dad had the Jared curl and fucking Raiders hat. Um, when I when I like when I was born, that's that was his look. So um, so yeah, that was very popular. And then it translated into the videos themselves. You see, the videos were very simple shot out here in LA. You see them like just just basically the the straight out of Compton videos, just basically just them rolling through fucking Compton. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, one of the, one of the major shifts that you see and it, it reflects in the music videos was uh, a lot of these uh, groups, because I mean, again, like Death Row Records and that's literally, we could do probably four episodes just on Death Row Records and, and all the, the drama and everything that went around that. But you look at something like that, they're, they're not backed like, you know, pick it really. I mean, there's, you, you get Capitol Records or something like they don't have a major financial backer. So they're still able to, because the whole idea, right, if you look at music videos, what they are and what they've always been for the most part since they came out, um, very seldom do you have something where it's like Thriller, where it's an artistic piece for the sake of being an artistic piece. Normally what they're about is essentially a, a, an advertisement, a three or a four or five minute advertisement to get people to go buy a record. Um, and so in keeping with that, it's like, hey, we need a music video because it's going to drive sales of the records, of the albums. We need, uh, we need something. Well, if you don't have a lot of money, you got to keep it simple. Um, and what they did in keeping it simple was they exposed a whole side of, of culture that to most of the country was completely unknown. And that's why when you see it, it's, I mean, a lot of those early videos, yeah, they're either, they're, they're in, uh, you know, low riders or some sort of a car and they're cruising around um, their neighborhood. And then it usually ends somewhere like, you know, they're essentially going to a block party that's going to be a little concert or something they did, or they're at a house party and, you know, there's good looking women around and that kind of a thing. And so it's really kind of showcasing that, that culture of, you know, being a young 20 something, just essentially out there hustling, trying to get something going and get some money in your pocket. Yeah. 
but like with the evolution of NWA, of course, eventually, as we all know, the group broke up and then they had splinters. Ice Cube went on to do his own thing. One of the best rap videos ever, in my opinion, is Ice Cube's Today Was a Good Day. Yeah. And it's just a day in the life of this rapper. You know what I'm saying? And it, the, the lyrics say the whole get down, and then you actually see it in the video. He's riding around on a low rider, wakes up, gets in the low rider, goes out, starts playing basketball, you know, picks up this chick, they fucking have sex in a fucking motel, and he's just lucky that he makes it home. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's basically, like, that's basically what he's saying. You know what I'm saying? Like, freaking, like, and my little day, whatever today was a good day. I made it home alive. You know what I'm saying? I got some ass. I got play some basketball, play some dominoes and shit like that. It was just a regular day in fucking South Central California. And then on the other end, Dr. Dre really hit the fucking uh, ground running with fucking ain't nothing but a G thing. That was really what broke Dr. Dre out. You know what I'm saying? And then that's another one of those days. It's a day in the life where you see the, the beginning of the video is like Snoop Dogg in his debut. Fucking, you know what I'm saying? You know, one, two, three, and to the four. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at your door. You just basically them getting up. You mean, like, we're going to go to this, just like you're talking about, we're going to get up this party or whatever, yep. and we're going to be drinking 40s. We're going to, you know, we got the hats with the marijuana symbol. I remember the videos were very explicit with that. They had the marijuana center, mar- marijuana symbol blurred out because you can show that on TV for some reason. Uh, and then, you know, you got the and I don't even think you had medical marijuana in most states. It was just straight up prohibition. Exactly. So freaking like you couldn't show marijuana. They had the low riders, you know, at a party or whatever. And then it ends at a party. And it was like, I think the, I think the main narrative of the video is like, they're like trying to mack at some girl. I remember that in the video. They try to mack at some girl. She thinks she's too bougie to be at the hood party. Like, like all the dudes trying to holler at her. She's just like, no, no, no. And I think the end with them like splashing 40s all over. Uh, that was the end of the video. And then, and, and then the video ends with like the next day was like five in the morning. You see Snoop Dogg sh- uh, struggling to get back home. And, and then, of course, Snoop himself, you know, had his own string of videos. And then, of course, you had, you know, uh, what's my name? Snoop Doggy Dog. Snoop Doggy Dog. That shit. And Gin and Juice. You know what I'm saying? They, you know, I think the Gin and Juice narrative, they got, they show condoms. You know what I'm saying? I think they're like at a drive-in. They see people fucking in the car. And like, same thing. They had another party. I think it's supposed to be a party at his parents' house. And then like, uh, the parents actually come home. And at the end of the video, you see all these people in this house, the parents come on, they're like, what the fuck going on? And you see all these people, and you don't see it, but you hear, like, he's, like, busting out gunshots. Like, getting everybody out of there. Everybody starts running out of there comically. And then, I think the very last thing you see is a naked girl running out of a fucking, running out of a fucking house. You know what I'm saying? And it's just crazy stuff that they were getting away with, man. Like, freaking... Um, Again, because I think it's one of those things that Bear is kind of repeating, right? Because when you when you're looking at anything especially in art media and entertainment you have a tendency to look at it from where you are today so like all the stuff you're talking about right now especially if you're you know a grown adult and you're listening to this you're like going yeah what's the big deal but in the 1990s early 90s like i mean you have to remember this in conjunction with some of the violent lyrics uh, that you had in like some ice tea songs and twisted sisters and all this other stuff it literally spawned congressional hearings about what was being said and done in music specifically, even more than movies and, and uh, television, because it was just so far afield. It was so, so beyond what they have with this idea of censorship um, that, I mean, that's literally what ended up spawning the record labels and everyone started putting the parental advisories on certain yeah. albums was because. I was actually about to get into that. Yeah. 
to, you know, because since I'm talking about the content of the videos themselves, uh, one particular group became a pet project of uh, Alan Tipper Gore at the time, uh, particularly Tipper Gore, uh, who basically christened themselves as like the fucking uh, marshals of uh, American morality for the children and shit. They went after two live crew. Uh, based out of Florida. <laughs> yeah, and their videos were much more explicit and the content of the songs is much more explicit than most rappers out there, particularly the Me So Horny video, which um, was a popular favorite of mine. Uh, it, it's basically just a pool party with the rappers and there's like a bunch of girls in bikinis, like foam bikinis, shaking their asses and shit all around it. And like the lyrics, oh, me so horny, uh-uh, me so horny. It's just a really nasty video for the time. And yeah, they went after two live crew hardcore, but I think they actually eventually had the court battle get down, and two live crew won. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's like a freedom of speech battle or some shit like that. Yeah, because I mean, if you because again, most of those freedom of speech cases and stuff like that were were actually decided with. Um, oh, what was the uh, what was the comedian's name um, in the seventies? Ended up going to jail a bunch for for breaking these laws. Lenny Bruce? Lenny Bruce, yeah. Lenny Bruce. So a lot of those things would just fall back under cases that had already been decided under under things related to Lenny Bruce. But what I was going to say is, as far as what's kind of funny about Two Live Crew, it's hard to find a song in their catalog, especially from that time, that is anywhere near as as kind of explicit or obscene as most of what Little Kim did later on or... I mean, it doesn't, most of their videos didn't even get nearly as, as sexual um, as, as like the Thong song by Cisco in terms of yeah. like the video. Like, getting into the shit, we talked about a video that just got released a couple of days ago. Yeah, Cardi, um, exactly. Which stands for wet ass pussy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, all of them time. They were just ahead of their time, I think, in, in some respects. But by the same token, because, you know, they're, they're, their songs are interesting. Like, that one specifically, Oh Me So Horny. Like, there's not that many other songs of theirs that I think most people would recognize or know. Um, so, I mean, you can argue both ways. Like, were they in some ways a victim of their time? Yeah, but by the same token, if they came out now, I mean, they'd just, they might almost just be white noise in the background because of how much farther and crazier some stuff has got. I mean, nobody's going to argue. I don't think you could argue that, like, you know, NWA or Ice Cube or Dre or Snoop or, or Jay-Z or anybody else who's, like, a top-the-game hip-hop artist. Like, nobody's going to say, I don't think, that if they came out now versus before, that they wouldn't still be, like, you know, cooking with gas, right, as they like to say, like, to have some real fire behind them. But Two Live Crew is one of those ones that's, like, I mean, they're almost a little more gimmicky, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and speaking of the gimmick get down, like a lot of rappers actually changed their gimmick to match the harder edge that was coming out right now. Like good examples I can think of off the top of my head, LL Cool J, you know, who was back in the 80s doing, you know, I Need Love and shit like that, you know what I'm saying? And then he come out with, you know, Mama Said Knock You Out, which is all black and white. It's him in a ring with the whole uh, ring announcer thing, like rapping into that, which is a very simple video, but very effective. And also Hammer tried that shit too. Uh, he went from, you know, Christian rappers singing about, you know, uh, we got to pray, you know, we got to pray so you make it today. He went from that shit to a pumps and a bump, uh, which was uh, another one of those two live crew like videos, which is basically filmed at the back of his house. It's like a pool party, girls around there. He's in the fucking Speedo. Uh, <laughs> and like, it just, it was stuff like that. People just trying to match the times. Now, 
in terms of we're talking about a lot about rap, whatever, but uh, really during that time, especially in the early 90s, that's when I discovered rock, really, because uh, I mainly grew up on R&B and rap. That was basically what I grew up on because that's what I was listening to in my house. Uh, but through the box, again, I discovered rock videos. Uh, two in particular were my big favorites. The first one was uh, Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden. Yeah, I love the video. Great video, great song. Yeah, and then like, yeah, and then it got me in the sound bar, and I was like, okay, this is dope, because the video is like done, like, it's kind of this absurd, real surreal kind of landscape where it's like this cookie-cutter family, kind of like 50s style, like leave the beaver type shit, and they're brightly colored, and you see, uh, you know, Soundgarden, you know, doing the, the, the thing with the the instruments and whatnot, but then, like, as the video progresses, like, I think, the, like, the sun is starting to melt the fucking family, like, their faces become distorted, and all this other shit, and it just becomes really weird, but I always like to look at that video, man. Uh, it was really, it was really cool, and it played on the box a lot, too. Uh, another video that I love, also of the, of the same vein, which I, which actually, uh, we were talking about our werewolf movie, I want to put a scene where we put the song in there if we can. Um, uh, Green Jelly's Three Little Pigs. I don't know if I know that one. You you know, like, uh, it's basically the video is claymation. And uh, basically it shows the whole story of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf. And uh, the lyrics, the, the chorus, I think you'll get this shit. Little pig, little pig, let me in. Not for the hair of my chinny, chin, chin. Little pig, little pig, let me in. Well, I'm huffing and puffing and blow your house down. That shit. That's the song. No, I and, don't know that one, man. I'm gonna have to. I'll post it on the uh, dropping that culture page a little bit later when I get a chance. But yeah, I love that video. And then it's so weird because it's claymation and it ends with Rambo <laughs> <laughs> shooting up the fucking uh, uh, bat, big bad wolf and shit. It's crazy, man. But it's a dope little video, man. And. Uh, yeah, that one and last one uh, that I really liked uh, in the uh, early '90s, uh, Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah, I figured you'd get to that one. Great fucking video, and then of course changed the game, of course in terms of how rock was seen by the public, because you know introduced grunge to people. You know, you see Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl, and they're like in a, in a and then like in the high school gymnasium. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this hazy, uh, almost like a sepia tone video where they're, they're like they're playing their uh, song in this uh high school gym and you see cheerleaders and you see people in the stands like it's a basketball game or some shit and they're doing a song and it's really it's really cool i always love to look at that damn video and there's also a lot of distortion in that shit too but it's a really dope video man and i love that shit man i'm trying to think of any other rock videos of that time that i really uh did. yeah were there any ones that really kind of stuck out to you I'd say I probably started getting a little more into uh, to music videos a lot deeper, mid to late 90s. Um, I, one thing I will say on the earlier one I was thinking of is we were talking about um, kind of the, the shift in hip hop and, and those videos that were, you know, essentially kind of low budget, but like, here's a day in my life kind of thing. Um, it, it's kind of interesting how that kind of bleeds across genres because you pretty much see that um, in Sublime's music videos. Oh, yeah. Right, I mean, because it's basically just a day in a uh, day in his life, um, you know, th those kinds of things where it looks like they're basically just hanging around Long Beach, where where he lived. 
Um, so I, I think it's kind of interesting how you kind of get that kind of moving across genres and that, that aspect. I think probably where I got deepest into music videos, I, I've always liked music. I've listened to, listened to stuff, but I, I don't remember us necessarily having cable when I was, when I was younger in the early nineties. Um, but I know that by the time I started getting junior high and high school, I was all about that shit. And I'd say probably, probably the two that stick out of my brain the most um, from when I was younger would be um, Freak on a Leash from Corn, Right. Like that, that one from a visual standpoint, I mean, the, the song's, song's all right. It's good for a metal, metal rock song. Um, but it, for people who haven't seen it, I'd be surprised if you haven't by now. You can look it up, I'm sure. Um, yeah. You're literally watching a bullet fly through all kinds of stuff. And they're, they're shooting at a high frame rate. So you're getting super, super slow-mo playback of this bullet just that has been fired from a gun going through all kinds of different things and, and shattering, you know, glasses and popping balloons and all kinds of stuff. And then at the very end, it's basically about to hit, um, what's Jonathan? I can't remember Jonathan's last name. Uh, he's a lead singer for Corn. It's about to hit him. And he does this weird little scat thing. And then the bullet goes backwards for the rest of the song, back through everything that it, it had just shot through and kind of blown up. So I remember that one being extremely visually commanding. And then another one that I'm pretty sure you've made fun of me for this before, but it was kind of funny and stupid and campy or whatever, but it was Weapon of Choice from Fatboy Slim featuring Christopher Walken. And oh, I love, I, no, I love that video. It's, maybe, maybe it was my buddy Josh was making fun of me for it. Somebody was making fun of me for liking it. But it's, it's this ridiculous thing. It is Christopher Walken basically just sitting in like a lobby at like a, like a big hotel or something. And mm -hmm. there's some guy in the corner vacuuming. And then this ridiculous song from Fatboy Slim called Weapon of Choice comes on, and it's the, the, the only lyrics in it is, you can go with this, or you can go with that, you can go with this, or you can go with that. I think I'll go with this, because this is kind of fat. And yes. Christopher yeah. Walk has this ridiculous dance number that he does around this hotel lobby, and then it ends with him sitting back down, back to waiting for whatever's supposed to happen. I, I don't even know how many times I must have watched it, but every time it came on, I stopped, and I was like, all right. Yeah, I remember that video, and that was very popular at that time, man. It was, it was a hot video, man. And of course, you see Christopher Walken. A lot of people forget that Christopher Walken is a classically trained dancer. Oh yeah, he killed it. He killed it in that video, man. So yeah, he uh, it was it was a great video, man. Now, one thing before we get into the late '90s, early 2000s, because we didn't get that much more time. Uh, I wanted to say one aspect of the video that we that doesn't really exist anymore, but was huge when we were younger. The world premiere music video when they were like fucking like simulcast like fucking over like several networks to premiere this new music video oh yeah i remember those yeah when michael jackson had a lot of them madonna had one i remember um i forgot who else a couple of other, other people had one i think boys and men had one too but it would be like simulcast on like mtv bt fox and you know it would show it showed all the same time or bt mtv vh1 but they would like, you know, they would pump up the premiere of this great music video from this artist or whatever. And usually, more often than not, it's usually Michael Jackson's. Michael Jackson's movies are basically short films. Yeah, but they so they yeah. sent them out because I remember Jennifer Lopez having them and uh, uh, P Diddy having some, and I think Shakira even even might have had one. Yeah, it might it might have been some people later, but the one I was just the one I was going off the ones I remember on top of my head. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like Black or White had a video had uh, the premiere because. Uh, you know, it had like George Wynn and it had Macaulay Culkin, and it was the first video to in, to introduce the technology of morphing in the video. Uh, and then, of course, you go to the other one, uh, was it Jam? 
with him and Michael Jordan. It's basically, that's a simple video too. It's basically them in a warehouse. Uh, Michael Jackson's dancing. There's some kids doing a little shit. I think, I think maybe Heavy D is in the shit too. No, Heavy D, I think Heavy D and Naughty by Nature to do cameos in jam. And it's basically Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan playing a basketball game together. Of course, Michael Jordan's schooling the shit out of Michael Jackson. And then I, I love how both of them are teaching them aspects of their game. It's two of the biggest stars in the world at that time. The biggest basketball player in the world and the biggest pop artist in the world together. And they're showing each other how to do, you know, what it is that makes them great. Um, Michael Jordan trying to show Michael Jackson how to play basketball and Michael Jackson trying to teach Michael Jordan to dance. And, like, it was, it was a very big video at the time. Um, another world premiere I remember, the Remember the Time video. Basically, uh, all most of the videos from the Dangerous album for Michael Jackson had world premieres. And I remember Remember the Time had um, Eddie Murphy as a, it's like Egyptian theme. It was like basically like ancient ancient Egypt. And Michael, uh, Eddie Murphy is a pharaoh. Iman is his queen. Uh, and he got like Magic Johnson as one of the slaves or whatever. <laughs> and then another, and then also you see um, there's like two palace guards. One of them is fucking uh, Tiny Zeus Lister with the fuck with the fucked up eye. Yeah, he's one of them. And the other one is a big black dude. I forgot his name, but he's the dude that uh, created Underworld. Hmm. He, he, yeah, is those those were the, like the two big muscular uh, prison guards in that uh, whole video, and then of course ends with a great uh, choreographed spot by Michael Jackson. Um, now going into the late '90s, uh, they started changing up things a little bit in terms of both rock and rap, and basically all around the board in terms of videos, they started getting more cinematic again. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like I remember, like you know, the whole. Uh, uh, Notorious B.I.G. Pub Daddy video for Hypnotize was basically them on like a, an adventure. They're like on a boat and it's like almost James Bond like and they had girls and they on the boat and then of course they would cut to them like doing a performance and shit like that so that was a big video uh, and then I remember the R. Kelly uh, download video that was pretty much a mini movie too and it was pretty a tra- it's a pretty tragic one too because it's like basically, basically uh, it's um R. Kelly, and he's working, he's like a bodyguard working for this uh, gangster named Mr. Big, who's played by Ron Isley from the Isley Brothers. Yeah. And uh, his girl is a, I forget the actress' name, I think it's uh, Garcelle Beauvais, I believe the actress's name. And she was, uh, she was one of the flower girls in Coming to America. She was a uh, fancy on the Jamie Foxx show. And I think she's currently one of the uh, housewives of Beverly Hills or something like that. She's one of those type chicks. Okay. And I think the most recent film thing she did, she was in Spider-Man Homecoming. She was like uh, Michael Keaton's wife in that thing. She was the main girl. So the whole get down of the video is R. Kelly and Garcelle are having this uh, affair. I think her name in the video is Lola Hart or some shit like that. Some generic ass name. And they're having an affair and eventually Mr. Biggs finds out R. Kelly gets his ass kicked. He's left in like a desert. Uh, I think he like breaks his legs and shit and fucking like, uh, I think at one point he's like, uh, Mr. B, uh, Ron Osley looks at Arcade and says, look at me, look at me. I did this to you. And leaves him for dead pretty much. And the video ends with a recovering Arcade in a wheelchair and apparently Mr. B has got to Lola too because he beat her basically to death. She dies at the end of the video. And very tragic too. Like, he's like, damn, this is pretty hardcore for a video, man. Well, it was kind of in, a, in some ways, I think you can argue it's a forerunner of the, uh, was it R. Kelly in the Closet? 
Yeah, it was actually. And then they they did sequels to the download video with uh the uh the Isley brothers had a song Contagious in the early two thousands. And Ron Isley played Mr. Biggs again and again. He's catching one of his girls having an affair with R. Kelly's character. And I think the girl this time was a singer Shantae Moore. But like they and then they didn't start the whole sing song type deal explaining the plot of the video and the song. And Ron and Ron Isley comes and he's like, What the hell is going on between the sheets in my home? She's like, Baby, wait, let me explain before you start to point your cane. It's it, they're telling the story. Yeah, it was a forerunner to a trapped in the closet and all that shit. Because it's like explaining the whole story in song, you know. And uh, also, I think another video that popped in my head while we were talking about this, uh, rock videos started, you know, getting more flashy and a lot more uh, fun. Like, you know, you have videos like, you know, uh, what's that shit? Uh, what's the name of that group that did that song, All Star? Oh, uh, was that Smash Mouth? Yeah, Smash Mouth. Yeah, hey now, you're an All Star. Like, that bright ass video. They just you know what I'm Sturgis this week. Did you hear about that? Oh yeah, the the main guy did some shit. I forgot what exactly. Oh, he, just, he just was. Ta- he just got up, and said "fuck COVID," and then they all played a concert. That's all. <laughs> oh okay. Yeah, he, he people people getting down on him because he's playing a concert uh, at Sturgis with like two hundred thousand bikers out there, and you know everyone's still worried about the social distancing stuff and all that. And he's just like, "Okay, we're gonna have a party." Yeah, and then I started getting into like rock again too, and then like groups like Limp Biscuit started coming out, and fucking Lincoln Park in the late nine, late nineties, early two thousands. I started getting into them, like you know, like yeah, I need something to break. I like that video because uh, it's basically just like them and like uh, a bunch of cam- cameos in their shit. I think Snoop Dogg makes a cameo in the. Uh, I think it's was the song "Break Stuff" or "Give Me Something to Break." I think was the name of it. Uh, I think it's I, I can't remember either. It's one one of the two of them. It was off their their second album because Three Dollar Bill was their first one. When they did that cover of the George Michael song "Faith," right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, they showed they showed the fuck yeah. yeah. So yeah, they way, did way back when, way back when my my uh, my buddy Richie Barron, uh, may he rest in peace. He passed away a little bit ago, but when they first started out, he worked for them as a as like a manager for for a little bit, and then he passed him up because you know as he'd always say, he's like that's it's just not his forte. He's a He's a, a roadie and a journeyman uh, grip, but yeah, I mean, he, he'd tell all kinds of crazy stories with them, but that again, as a video, I don't know if you ever saw that one. That was literally just footage of them touring around. Cause I think they were on tour with corn at the time as an opening act. And that, that video and that song is what blew them up and got them out there. Yeah. I, I, I remember that a little bit. And also like uh, getting into like the rap aspect of it, we mentioned a little earlier, Little Kim came out around that same time and she was coming out in the video. I had a huge crush on fucking uh, Little Kim in her first video, the crush, which is named Crush on You. And she's like in, she's like in different colored outfits. She, you know, this is before all the surgery and all that crazy shit that she did to herself. But she looked good naturally, but you know, self-image thing, but she looked good in that video. She's like wearing fur coats. And, you know, wearing bikinis and all this other stuff, and wearing shirts with no bra on and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, and, like, videos started getting a little more explicit again, especially going into the early 2000s with the rise of, you know, bling bling and the bling bling culture and shit. You know, every every, every rapper started wearing, you know, diamonds, and, you know, they had diamond chains and I think, uh, all this other shit. I think if you're going to look at it, though, there there was a, a very clear kind of like a, a, a divergence or like a bifurcation that happened in it where you had very clearly in the music video realm, 
you have these massive budget gargantuan films like I kind of alluded to earlier with you know these directors were making millions of dollars and then you had um, specifically I'd say probably more on hip-hop a little bit on punk uh, where you'd have music videos that they clearly didn't have much of a budget to work with they're just doing what they can with what they could um, and so if you looked at something like um, I can never remember the name of the song that uh, that Ja Rule and J-Lo song uh I'm real way that way. Yeah, because I'm real. I remember that shit. That one, that one, yeah. So, like, that one, if you if you watch it, um, and I, I remember it used to be one of the top ones they'd have on TRL all the time. You watch yeah. that thing, they've got um, this really annoying kind of a thing where it's, like, overdone sky with, like, overdone sun and, like, kind of ridiculous over-the-top cinematic, this, that, and the other. And then, again, major huge camera moves. You know, if, if, you're, if you're at all kind of literate with um, production and, and you really start to kind of see behind the camera, as it were, you'll see that there's these massive camera moves and sweeping stuff and the, the large, um, uh, what, what do you call it? I guess you'd say it's a, a choreographed, even though it's not necessarily dance numbers, but choreographed movements that they have of all these extras and everything. And then you, you had that going on. And then on the flip side, like you said, a lot of the, the kind of bling side of stuff or or that more traditional kind of hip hop, hey, this is where I'm at. Like the, the number one that I go to if I think like 99, 2000 hip hop, PD Pablo's North Carolina, come on and raise up. Yeah, take your shirt off, surround your head, something like a helicopter. Yeah, yeah no. dude, like <laughs> I go back to that one or like um, Bubba Sparks or something like that, where it's just like these guys are like, hey, this is my, essentially this is my house, my friend's house. We're going to go and shoot this crazy music video, get everyone we can to show up and kind of have a party and see what we can make out. Like yeah, we'll have, one or the other. Yeah, we're gonna have a bunch of big booty chicks here. They can be shaking their ass and shit like that. Like that's another one they brought back. You know, break, shaking their ass and videos like uh, especially like the down south groups like uh, like Juvenile and the Hot Boys and Lil Wayne and shit. They, that's when they first started coming up. And you know, Juvenile back that ass up. You know, Cisco Thong song girls. You know, sexy yeah, girls. Just say, even Cisco though, if you if you think about the Thong song there's a lot of production value in that. I mean, it's not just that they went and got a bunch of, bunch of models and, and hot girls to do stuff, but like the camera movements, the boats, all the different stuff they have in there, there's a ton of money that you see on the screen where like, again, you have that other side, the, the underground hip hop, um, some of the stuff that you'd see on BET After Dark, things like that, where it's like, you can tell they had 40,000 bucks to go shoot this thing and they just made it work with the artist and whoever they could get versus, like I said, we talk about Cisco, we talk about J Lo, P Diddy, Freak on a Leash with Corn. Any of these other guys, we go, man, they had they had a half million dollars, a million dollars to shoot this thing. Well, I would say that during the late eighty, late nineties, early two thousands, was a very prosperous time, particularly in rap music, because you could tell about what the rappers were going through. I mean, you know, like I said, every rapper had you know platinum chains with diamonds and shit, special chains. It was it, it was it was the beginning of the bling bling era, where you know you had shows on like. MTV, like, Cribs, and, like, uh, what, uh, what was that shit on VH1, The Fabulous Life, where we would just show rappers, you know, uh, about, I spend this much on this shit, I spend this much on that shit. It was during the time when, you know, every rapper had their own record label, every rapper had their own clothing line, uh, you know what I'm saying, like, motherfuckers was buying private islands, shit like that, everybody, oh yeah, and then, of course, the MTV Cribs there, where everybody had Bentleys, and, you know, uh, Ball of Chris All. And for some reason, a copy of Scarface. And, yeah, Scarface and then, is a great movie. Yeah, Scarface is all right. And then uh, the one thing that would always kill me, especially when rappers would be on cribs, is that it always had a place to reflect on where I came from. You know what I'm saying? 
talented performers to kind of come out and and have a real shot at getting a, a foot in the door and, and holding on to a piece of the space. I mean, two guys that I don't think anybody's going to ever run them for GQ sexiest men um, would be the guys from the Black Keys. Um, or, you know, was it uh, uh, Jack? I can never remember his last name. The the guy uh, Jack is it Jack Black? No, it's not Jack Black. It's Jack. Um, no, you're talking about the. Uh, fuck, I know you're talking about. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? The the guy, him and his uh, his sister, Jack White. White, Jack White, yeah, Jack Black. Well, Jack Black too. Jack Black's a, another good one. He is actually a great, great musical uh, performer as well and writer. But what I was going to say is, I, I think overall we're kind of more into a situation now where uh, musicianship, musical ability, the ability to compose, the ability to perform, um, is is kind of reemerging as a central tenant above and beyond um, just the marketability and the packageability of what people look like. I mean, the, the Black Keys have been putting out fantastic, uh, kind of a, a neo-rock sort of a thing here for a while that, um, you know, to be frankly honest, if we were in the mid-90s, you know, you, you don't really have it. I mean, Kurt Cobain, sure, he, he kind of had this, you know, dark, edgy grunge rock thing, but, you know, a lot of what, what got uh, a lot of play with people was, you know, he kind of had that bad boy look to him, right? There was that uh, they're still selling kind of a sexuality to a certain extent. It wasn't as much about the music, which, you know, people have argued and talked about how much that contributed to his depression and the rest of it. So that's a whole nother discussion. Um, but I think as far as the chances to kind of be optimistic about where we are musically and where we're going, the music video is probably going to be in a lot of ways, a lost art form for a while. And maybe here and there we'll get something akin to a, uh, a thriller moment where it kind of comes out of nowhere like oh wow look what a music video can be but I don't think we're going to go back to massive budgets as kind of the norm um, and ultimately I think that'll be a good thing for music because now we're going to get back to uh, people who can perform and can write I mean I always I bag on her a little bit but it's only because she kind of deserves it you know Britney Spears um, from the bits I know being behind the scenes working sound and other stuff I'm not aware of very many, if any, times that she's ever sung at one of her concerts. Um, you know, say what you want about Taylor Swift, like her music, don't like her music. She's she's a real singer. She really sings. I, I know for a fact, because I talked to some music guys, Mandy Moore actually sings when she sings. She's not lip syncing. Um, and so I think, if nothing else, some of those uh, package deal kinds of people, marketable, you know, creations of marketing will, will start to go by the wayside, and we're going to get back to actual performers, which for me, I think is a good thing. And those are the people that I want to hear from anyway. Yeah, I got you. Also, one last note uh, for the, you mentioned get the Guilty Contents video. You, you saw, you know, who know, remember the narrator of that video? Yeah. Yeah, Robert Culp. Oh, yeah. That's an old school dig right there, man. <laughs> yeah. All right, so on that note, and AJ really put it beautifully, I can't really um, follow up on that. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and end it with that. Plus, I have to get ready for work, so there's that. But uh, we really hope you guys have really enjoyed this episode of Dropping That Culture with J.D. and A.J. Again, this is another one of the freestyle videos of two guys just talking about shit we love, man. And we really hope you enjoyed it. Tell your friends about the podcast. Like, comment, share, subscribe, all that good shit, man. Really help us out, man. So, again, this has been Dropping That Culture with J.D. and A.J. I'm J.D. I'm A.J. We'll catch you guys next time. Peace. Later. Dropping That Culture. Driving that coast. Driving that coast. Driving that coast. Driving that coast.
Dropping that coach. 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 Dropping that coach.